super opera man. Um, <laughs> they do tuxedo, tuxedo mask, mask, basically. Yeah. Mackenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're talking about Masquerade or Opera. It's a slugly business. And our guest is teacher, opera singer, and dungeon master, Miff Coghill. Hello, welcome, Miff. Hi, how are you going, guys? Oh, we're great. We're great. I, I had a... to suppress the urge to clap when you said dungeon master because it sounds so epic. I know. <laughs> it is. We should clarify. We mean Dungeons and Dragons dungeon yes, master. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely that. Not the other type of dungeon yeah. master. There's nothing wrong with the other type of dungeon There's master, wrong, but it's but important it's... to clarify. I Which feel type? like people could get the wrong idea, especially since I sing as well. Yeah. You know. People. We have, well, we have have had at least one of the other type of dungeon master on the show although it really? might be a secret so we won't tell you which guest it was now i'm gonna to have to listen to every episode closely <laughs> and find the telltale clues and that's my friday nights for a while mm. but i feel like you've oversold me i'm, I'm technically not a teacher yet okay. i'm still trying to finish my master's but i will be a teacher by the end of next year well that, that, i think that counts yes yeah it's Come pretty on. much it. it's paperwork. i'm a teacher in my soul yeah I've always thought that. Since you said you were doing it, I've been like, because we're, we're old friends. Yes. You know, this is, it's nice when you get to have an old friend on the podcast, but I knew you'd be great for this book because you are definitely an opera singer. You can't argue with that one. It, well, I'm not a professional. I would love to be paid for it, but I missed that boat. But I, uh, I sing opera at every opportunity and, you know, it doesn't take much encouragement. So... <laughs> Um, <laughs> Good. I should hope not. I should hope not. Because it's so much fun. I always say to people, it's the most fun you can have standing up. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, look, that's, we'll, we might, we'll discuss that. That's I a real feel. nanny og thing to say. It is. <laughs> it's going in the cookbook. <laughs> You've been a Pratchett reader for a long time. Very long time. It would have been summer school holidays. I would have been about 13 or 14. And one of my sisters had been given The Colour of Magic, and this is the original print. Oh. They'd been given a copy of that for Christmas, didn't like it. I picked it up and I was just sitting on the couch in this sun-drenched room that we had uh, back when I was a kid and uh, just sat there all afternoon glued to the book, giggling my head off because I was tangentially aware of the fantasy genre. I've done a little bit of reading into that. My parents had possibly unwisely uh, purchased for me the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's famous and content warning here, famous rape scene in the first chapter, uh, pretty huh. much. Uh, which is probably not appropriate for a 10-year-old, but that's okay. I mean, moving beyond that, I'd always enjoyed The Hobbit and all of that kind of thing. But this was the first time I'd seen someone deconstructed. And, and I just laughed and laughed and laughed. And later I found that there were other Terry Pratchett books and I was terribly excited because it, as you know, the colour of magic, and I can say that because you've done this on the podcast now, 
it it ends on a bit of a a cliffhanger, literally. <laughs> you know, rinse wind holding on to the side of a cliff and about to drop off the edge of the world. And so mm. I was always a bit disappointed that I didn't find out what happened. But the next book I got was actually Pyramids. And oh, then uh, it was a great one to get. And then and then it sort of moved on from there. And I remember sitting in my classes in VCE um, having a copy of Small Gods hidden under my uh, stack of books and reading that quietly in class and trying to not do my actual work but read Terry Pratchett. So, yeah. Uh, the, the addiction started young. Nice. That's a smart way to do it because like, I used to just like read in my desk. So like my desk would be slightly ajar <laughs> and I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> bit of a giveaway, bit of a giveaway. <laughs> yeah, if I can just say as a teacher to be, um, we know when you're doing that. Kids out there, note to you, we, we know that you're doing what you're not supposed to be doing, okay? We, we know, we can tell. If you feel like you're getting away with it, it's because <laughs> the teacher is letting you get away with it because they, they know it's better than trying to hassle you about it. And, well, and a note to teachers, um, if you don't want kids to read in their desk, don't have a competitive book reading chart in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, I was working at a school recently where they had one of those in the library. Uh, it was me and Louisa were number one and two throughout the whole thing. Yeah. And so if you had to take every spare minute you could to get and ahead. It's such an honest thing too because there's no one actually sitting there watching you read the books. There's no one who's going to go back and quiz you on it to make sure that, you know, you know some little thing from each chapter. So people have got to be really honest with that stuff. Mm. It's... <laughs> It's crazy. So, um, but that's a good thing, I think. It'd be a real hollow victory, though, if you like lied about the books you read to to win the school reading chart. Yeah, I never had to lie. Yeah, I just spent all night reading anyway. I read five Goosebumps books during Princess Diana's funeral. That's a, it. Was a long funeral. It was a really long funeral. <laughs> it was a long funeral, yeah. and also those books were not very long. Yeah, you could like read like five in a funeral. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that. I really shouldn't. But is that going to be the episode yeah, title? Yes. Five in a funeral? No. Uh. Uh, no, I don't think so. Five operas in a funeral? No, uh, let's not. Let's there's not five funerals in an opera. <laughs> um, well, there's certainly, there's certainly not five deaths in any one opera. Mm. There's only time for about one at the most. Well, no, yes, because a lot of we're going to have lots of opera questions because mm. I know just enough about opera to be dangerous. I feel. <laughs> um, <laughs> In the sense that I know I love a little bit about the things that everybody says when they first see opera. And they're all like, oh, I'm probably the first person to notice that oh, they repeat themselves a lot. And you're like, no, no, you're not. It's just. What's even more hilarious is when it gets translated into English and people are like, oh, I love how beautiful this, this aria is. And it gets translated into English and then you sing it to them in, in English and they're like, it just says the same thing over and over and over. And I'm like, yeah, it does. In fact, there is one of the, in there, in the book, there's one like that. And it's it's basically what, it, it's so mundane. Yeah. The, be- the beauty of it comes from it's the, music. The, the music. And it's not just the music, but it is a lot of the music. Yeah. The door is sticking. The door yeah, is stuck. Yeah, damn door sticks. It's damn door sticks. It sticks no matter what the hell I do. Uh, it's marked push. And indeed, I'm pushing. Perhaps it should be marked pull or something like that. Yeah. And, and, and I'm just thinking... I am famous for pushing on doors that are marked pull. And so I feel <laughs> like, like that, that was written for me. Like the Far Side cartoon, Midvale School for the Gifted. But we're going to have some opera questions for you as we go, I'm sure. I'll do my best to answer them. It's going to be great to have your insight from someone who's performed and seen a lot of opera. 
If you're listening and you've got questions or comments, uh, you can totally put them on social media while you're listening. The hashtag for this episode is Pratchat23. And just while we're on the subject of questions, if you've got any for this episode um, or, or for any episodes, we love them to be in a public forum. So we've had a few that have come via private messages recently. Um, and if look, if email is the best way for you to get in touch with us, that's fine. Or if you want to talk about something and you don't want it to be a public discussion, that's also fine. But if you just want to ask a question, and particularly if it's one you'd like us to address on the podcast, uh, it would be great if you could put that somewhere public because we like there to be a discussion and for people to be able to see those things. So yeah, that would be great. But I guess we should get on to discussing the book. And we, we'll start as we traditionally do with a reading of the blurb. I thought, opera, how hard can it be? Songs, pretty girls dancing, nice scenery, lots of people handing over cash. Got to be better than the cutthroat world of yogurt, I thought. Now, everywhere I go, there's, well, death to be precise, and plenty of it, in unpleasant variations. This isn't real life, it's worse. This is the opera house, Ankh-Morpork a huge rambling building where innocent young sopranos are lured to their destiny by a strangely familiar evil mastermind in a mask and evening dress with a penchant for lurking in shadows, occasional murder and sending little notes full of maniacal laughter and exclamation marks. Opera can do that to a man. But Granny Weatherwax, Discworld's most famous witch, is in the audience and she doesn't hold with that sort of thing. So there's going to be trouble but nevertheless a good evening's entertainment with murders you can really hum. And the show must go on. So I've been waiting for the whole blurb to say this, but surely the cutthroat world of yogurt would have had more culture. No! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm just trying to imagine what would you be cutting throats with in the cutthroat world of yogurt? I assume like a, a those cheese cutters. Oh no! You know what it is when you take you know when you take the lid off the yogurt pot, like mm. you, it's got the like like the sort of foil metal that you, mm. you fold mm. it back. That that's always got a really it sharp could edge. Be like a throwing star, you or something. you could fold it into a little ninja star like kids do with paper in schools, and it would be deadly. <laughs> it's got a real edge on it. Anyway, sorry. Um, yeah, that's so that's that's the blurb from. Um, it's actually the same blurb as I've got in the original edition over here. And this is of note for podcast listeners who care about this sort of thing. And I know there are some of you. This is the first book that I bought new as a hardcover when it first came out because it came out around the time I just caught up with all the ones that had previously been published. And I was working in a bookshop at the time and I got a staff discount. So I bought a hardcover when it came out. But it has the same blurb as the the current paperback, which I thought was interesting. Sometimes they change That's it neat. up. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's got Well, it's got the quote from... Um, Mr. Bucket or Mr. Bouquet. <laughs> I was thinking that when reading it and then one of our uh, regular listeners and subscriber, uh, Chew and Sneezed on Twitter, yes. pointed out that and posted a lovely gif of Hyacinth Bouquet. And I was just yeah. like, yes, oh, I thought that the whole time. Is this the first like proper big crossover book, do you think? Does it count? Does Are it you saying over? it's like the uh, end game of... No, because <laughs> Granny goes to Ankh-Morpork Pork a lot earlier. Well, in equal rights, she does go yeah. there. That's true. And there's there's a trip to Ankh-Morpork during Weird Sisters, although none of the witches go. But mm. the watch is in this one too. And there's yeah. Like, yeah. And I Tangentially. Feel like, like they're, yes. Yeah, they're not, I mean, they're not, all the characters aren't present. But yeah, I feel like. isn't there, so it's not a watch book. Ooh. It's a bit like, well, it's a little <laughs> bit like what, how they do in Deadpool where they, they like go to the mansion of the X-Men. Oh, but none of oh, the yeah. X-Men are there. But none, of the, none of the regular <laughs> X-Men are there. I feel like that's how they've kind of done it. It's like they've got the more peripheral characters mm. that, that come mm. in. 
So well, Nobby's a major watch character. Oh, it, yeah. Is it Nobby or is it Count de Nobs? Well, <laughs> look, we're getting way ahead of ourselves with that comment. <laughs> I just said that it all out, and I now understand why it's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. It is very funny. One of the things that struck me is that this is basically the second last proper witches book, because I mean, well, depends how you count the Tiffany Aching books. The Tiffany Aching yeah. books, yeah, mm. because the, after this, there's. Is it Kappa Yugulum is the last one, I think? And the, and then that's it. And I, I'm always really surprised because there's more and more watch books as you go along, but this sort of stops writing the witches' books with the original cast and switches over to Tiffany Aching after only five books. And it seems like not I many. I think that he didn't – this is pure conjecture, but my mm. feeling on that is that he knew that there was – that there weren't many more stories left to write, that Granny was re- really, you know – so old that she was staring death in the face hmm. and he, I, I think he did not want to write her death. That That's my feeling on it. Okay. With well, no evidence. Even wanting more. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it just seems very short because, I, you know, arguably Equal Rights feels very different to the other witches' books because it is much earlier and it doesn't have all the other characters in it. It means that there's really only four books you get that are about Granny and Nanny and this one doesn't even have Margaret in it. Like she's vaguely mentioned, but only really as like we need someone to replace her. Mm. And there um, is also the like the great sequence about Verence like looking for moustaches and yes. things. Oh yeah, <laughs> Nanny has desecrated his instructional book that he sent away for in the previous one. So now he thinks yeah. that's an integral part of the experience. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, which is a nice little nod to. I like you know. that you call it desecrated too, because I think that's kind of how it is. Yeah, yeah. Because this is going to be probably the rest of their lives. Like, oh, well, feeling a bit romantic, going to get the fake moustache out. Do you think, is that a deliberate nod to like 70s porn cinema? Do you think? I I don't know. I reckon it's just hilarious. (laughs) And it is exactly what Nanny would do. She would just. Oh, totally. Yeah, she has no maturity. (laughs) She doesn't doesn't need it anymore. No. She's she's, she's done with it. Yeah. Yeah. She's over it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But we are uh, we are back in the ram tops, and this is the the you know as they find themselves in, in their in their journey that these two witches don't have a third anymore, mm. which is weird for them. Um, witches come in threes; mm. they do. They need um, a buffer. And I quite liked that this is the book where um, they kind of just come out and explicitly say who's who in the classic trilogy of witch types. Um, and also, But also that, you know, they're a little bit, not coy about it, but they're just like, well, if we're going to speak plainly, uh, we're not going to use any language like the other one. Um, we're just going to say it. And you're like, okay, yep, great. Uh, so now they're looking for who's going to be. Who's on third. Who's on third, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, well, we know, we know who. Is intended to be on third at this stage. Prototacs. 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 I love that because that's exactly, and as someone with an unusual name, I can tell you that people always pronounce it exactly as they want to, no matter how many times you tell them. Once they've, it's it's like a, a horse getting the bit between its teeth and doesn't give a shit anymore. And they'll just say your name however they want and they think that you're weird because you've got a weird name and it's like, ugh. but she's chosen her her weirdness, which I think is wonderful, mm. Mm. you know. But I think it's interesting, like, because they talk about 
how she has natural talent as a witch and basically power mm. needs to find a way out and the way hers finds its way out is through singing. And I find it really interesting that she has created Predita as an alter ego, not just as like another name, but it's also like another version of herself that is a form of escapism. And is that the name and personality that's associated with the ability to sing and be a witch or are they all separate things? Well, Perdita is a continuation effectively. And I have to admit, I don't necessarily like the way that Pratchett continues that character on and that characterization. And rather than turning it into an essential part of Agnes as Agnes, um, and, and it being just a way to express another side of herself, he actually turns it into a whole other personality that can mm. take control. That, that's mm. in a later book. but um, There's elements of know, that in this book, though. There are. There are. Like she's like a little voice in Agnes's head going, just be a jerk to Christine. Yeah. Which yeah. is correct. Well, <laughs> well as time Christine goes on, can suck it. Well, like, yeah. <laughs> she, shows her, she shows her true colours as things go on. Do you know what, though? I have... I've known Christines and wanting to hurt them is seriously like wanting to hurt baby rabbits, you know. it's It, it feels evil because they're just sweet people, nice, kind, gentle people. They just happen to have this amazing talent and they're beautiful and they look great in a dress and it's like... I, I really I want to hate you, but I just can't. <laughs> so I disagree with you there because like I agree with um, I don't want to hurt Christine. I just want Christine to go get a job that is within her skill set. Mm. Um, <laughs> she well, she kind of has, but well, um, but yes. no. What I think is I don't agree that she's a sweet person. Like there's that scene later on where it's like she knows sure. exactly how to seem like that person. She's that's playing true. a role. Yeah. So that's not who she that's is. True. She's calculating. Yeah. So you're, you're right, actually, and and. You know, I, I've met people who really are what Christine purports to be. And that's fine. Like, yeah. Those people are yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're just beautiful human beings and terribly talented and, and it, it kind of makes you sick. <laughs> they're yeah. so talented and so beautiful. It's like, I, I want to hate you, but I can't. But but Christine is actually quite conniving, isn't she? Is Christine she, is well, someone who would grow up to be Dolores Umbridge is wh- what Christine whoa, would be. Whoa, okay. That's harsh. I don't know if that far. But if but she was in the right circumstances, that's how she could turn. Is, well, look, I mean, I think there's a there's a question here. And, look, we should establish what's going on because oh, we, we sorry, kind of yes. jumped into yeah. the, the question of Christine. But we do meet her very early on in yeah. the book as Agnes goes to Angmore Pork uh, and auditions at the Opera House. Um, and Christine is there also auditioning. Well, she's not auditioning, is she? Because she comes from a position of privilege. Mm. Her She gets hired as, a, as someone to be in the chorus of the Opera because her father has loaned the new company owner, Mr. Bucket, or Mr. Bouquet. Uh, I'm going to say Bucket because I, yeah. I think it's funnier. Yeah. I think it's funnier. But he, um, her father's donated to the Opera House and so, and, and it came along with strings, which was that she you're going to hire my daughter. And I wonder, this because of that background, I wonder, is she really conniving or has she just been taught that this is how the world works and she doesn't really realise that what she's doing is screwing other people over. She just thinks this is how you behave. That's still bad. Which is bad. I, think I agree. It's a bit but of it's column not... A and a bit of column B. Yeah. And she she clearly is not a particularly nice person in and we see this in the way that she treats Walter. Mm. Um, mm. She's your typical ingenue type character. Mm. And and there's nothing that says an ingenue has to be someone who really doesn't understand how the world works. They can understand completely how that, the world works and realise that their best chance to get what they need in life is 
through that conniving and manipulation that their beauty or um, some other attribute about them gives them. If that's the way the world works and you realise that and cotton on to that and that's the way, the easiest way for you to get on in the world, why would you not do it? I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm not necessarily sure that it's a bad thing, like that, that she's being evil for doing it. Well, evil, evil might be a bit strong. No, I think she's working within the system. I don't think she's walking through blindly. I don't think she knows fully how the world works. She's doing things to advantage herself best because she has a narcissistic viewpoint. Mm. And I think she's willing to step on the people around her to get what she wants. Doesn't mean she's evil, but it does mean she's calculating and not sweetness and light. It's, so she's complex. She's not she's, simple like yeah. in the way that she comes across. I think but. she's definitely ignorant, but I think it would be fair to say there's probably a certain amount of willfulness in that ignorance. And the way she orders Agnes around is, mm. is gross. Yeah. Like whether or not she understands, she never considers, well, clearly that's not okay. Like I'm making mm. somebody else do a lot of work for me for no good reason. Well, she literally like goes, my room is scary. I keep hearing voices. And then she just jumps into Agnes's bed. It's like, you deal with it. Now you mm. go sleep in there. Mm. So that is not obliviousness. That's sort of... I'm what's important. Other people so deal with the problems. So that you can't yeah. be ignorant in that situation. Mm. Yeah. yeah. If she was like, oh, can I stay in here with you? Mm. That's different. Yeah. Yeah. She, she's a really difficult character. And I think it's Pratchett trying to deconstruct the Christine from Phantom of the Opera. Right. The Weber one, yeah. Yeah, which we haven't talked about at all, but is a huge presence over the whole of this book. But it's well, yeah. like a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> well, because, uh, you know, the Phantom of the Opera is was called the Opera Ghost, mm. OG. Uh, in, oh, really? In yeah, the in the book. novel? In the book, yeah. Uh, and, in, and in the musical. Right. Hmm? He says, I remain your obedient servant, OG. For mm. Opera Ghost. Opera I did not ghost. know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Because <laughs> that's not what OG <laughs> means now, is it? No, we have, <laughs> I don't know what it means now, but... Um, yeah, we had a very funny joke in high school where we called a friend's boyfriend Opera Ghost because she originally referred to him as that other guy. And so we reduced that down to OG and then when they started dating, we turned it into Opera Ghost. So nice. it's very funny to nice. me and only me. Yeah. No, I think that's hilarious. Yeah. Um. No, o- o- OG means original gangster in case you're not familiar with that. Which is yeah. like the same as Opera Ghost. It's, a- it's kind of – or or if you are um, a middle-class – white person who doesn't want to think about gangsters its original guest is uh, like on podcasts and youtube channels and things like that they'll call someone an og oh like op and og right, okay. yeah oh. yeah okay. it's <laughs> also like an exclamation oh gee it's the opera ghost well <laughs> that's true um well because it also gets used when people say something is og they mean it's the original thing yes right like it's authentic these are yeah. all things i have never in my life there you go. OG. nice <laughs> Um, All right, should we go back to Lanka? I think we should. We should go back to Lanka because while Agnes is meeting Christine and, you know, although we haven't mentioned her audition scene, which I feel like we should because she sings in a way that is not humanly possible. Mm. Uh, Like it starts out where she just can sing anything and then it becomes now she's accompanying herself and now she's throwing her voice around the room. Um, and and it's indeed very well laid page. out. Now, yeah. Now, the, the, the only thing that's not humanly possible in mm. that is the actual voice throwing. You can give an impression that your voice is coming from different things, but you can actually, I don't know about thirds, but the Tuvan throat singers can sing with themselves in harmony. Whoa. 
So because they do what's called overtone singing. It's really unearthly. So you can actually do that. It just it's not going to sound like what they're describing in the book, but um, but you can. But you produce two different sounds at the same time. Is mm, that what's happening? Two different tones, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Amazing. He's sort of doing it to demonstrate that this is her magic power coming out. Yeah, yeah. And then back in Lanka, Nanny's like gone, yeah, we should get Agnes. Yeah, we'll get her as the third person, goes to see her mum, then goes, oh, she's not here. Mm. Oh, she's gone off to make more pork be in the opera. Oh, all right. Mm. Uh, and then her mum's like, can you do me a tea reading? She's like, yeah, all right. Yep, sure. Whatever. Uh, I, I love then... that whole thing. Let's see what destiny has for us in the shape of these little dried up bits of leaf or something like that. It's <laughs> so good. But yeah. also like in the tradition of all fortune telling scenes everywhere where the person doing the fortune telling knows that it's all a sham, yeah. suddenly doom is predicted yeah. unexpectedly. <laughs> And I like that even Nanny and Granny are not, can't get away from that trope. I love it so much. Narrative inevitability. Mm. Oh, so good. Like mm. it's, you know, it's like the seeing the grim in the tea leaves in Harry yeah. Potter. Like it's just like, uh, and goes to see Granny to say, look, we got to, you got to do a tea reading. You got to, it's just hilarious. Make a cup of tea, make a cup of tea. And, and, but then, you know, you can't hurry a good cup of tea. So. No, no, you can't. You can't. Is that the one where they fish the newts out of the water? Yes. Yeah. And then the newts like are mentioned again later, like, why is your hair so good? Oh, you got, got to get all the newts. Out yeah. the water first. <laughs> it's like, what product do you use? Newt free water. Amazing. It's not technically newt free. Like, if it previously had like infused with newts, do you, do you know newts. what, though? If someone put out water that said something like NFW shampoo, it'd be newt free water shampoo. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. that would sell. Like, people pay 40 bucks a bottle for it. It'd oh, yeah. Well, it's like when they started putting permeate free on all the milk. <gasps> Which is ridiculous. Nobody needs to worry about that. I saw a really good tweet where someone like said, shampoo says, no parabens, me not knowing what parabens are. Mm, yes, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, because you're like, they wouldn't say it doesn't have this unless it was a good thing not to have it, right? Right? It's like capitalism works. Uh, it's just because I thought the exact same thing. Just... There's another reason though why they might need to take a trip to Ankh-Morpork because oh. we've previously encountered a, a, a weird sort of scene. And I'd forgotten that this happened in this book. So I, when it happened, I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, a publisher has received a manuscript written on the back of old sugar bags and all kinds of stuff, which when read, they're all like, we've got to print this. And he gets um, out a ruler at some point. Yeah. And, <laughs> and stares at it for a while. Oh, it's just gold. Um and it, Nanny has, you know, taken the advice of her late husband. She doesn't say which one, uh, presumably the most recent one, uh, and written down a bunch of the stuff that she knows, recipes, and how does she put it? Like, you know, oh, cooking anecdotes and such. Yeah, <laughs> um, and um, and she sent it off, and it's been published as the joy of snacks. Yeah, which is hilarious. I've forgotten that's what it was called. Um, and. She's been sent back the money that she sent to the publisher to print it because she paid them to print it mm. and a bit extra, but mm. like only about $3, mm. which is a, you know, a veritable fortune in the Ram Tops. This cookbook, though, is kind of the MacGuffin of what gets them to it. Like it's what finally persuades Granny to go. She's like, yeah. we can't have a witch, you know, having someone pull one over on them and yeah. all of this stuff. So and it looks like she wrote it as well. And it looks like she wrote it. Yeah, and I do, I like, it, it's one of the instances, and this is sort of more explicitly called out later in the book, where Nanny use, has to use headology on, on Granny Weatherwax, but it's kind of with her explicit permission. Like, mm. Granny's like, I want to say yes to this, but I'm not going to say yes to it unless you ask me in the right way. It's consensual. And Nanny's like, okay, I know how I know how I have to say this, and I'll do it. And she kind of loves it as well. She's going along with it. 
for fun. Mm. And this is this is one of those instances. And, you know, maybe we'll call in on young Agnes. I mean, it's not really in our business what she's up to or if she's in trouble, but we'll just check in on her because we'll be there anyway. Um, and they decide to get the coach. And I, I, I was just like, <laughs> oh my God, why? Yeah. why? I, I, initially, I was like, why? And I was like, oh, because there's this hilarious business that happens because they do. Yeah. Um, and I guess we've already had like an extended broomstick flying sequence in which is it's very drafty, I mm. gather. Yeah. And they're getting on. They're getting on. It's in areas that, that Nanny doesn't want to talk about. <laughs> so, <laughs> which Granny's like, I didn't know there were such things. Um, yeah, hilarious. Um, I feel so sorry for the coach driver. Oh, Do you know who and the I feel really sorry for in this whole thing yeah. is the interpreter. Oh. He never even gets a name. I know. <laughs> he just is buffeted around by the forces of fate. But we meet him on the coach for the first time. And then everybody else exits the uh, carriage and uh, sits on the roof. Even though they've paid so much money. I know. It's very expensive. And the wishes have paid nothing. Yeah, yeah. but Grebo smells. Yeah. That's yeah. the problem. I mean, there is a famous song about a smelly cat. It's terrible. <laughs> uh, I did not know that. It's, well, it's the, from um, Friends? It's from Friends. Yeah. Oh, like, okay. there's no there's no actual song about it. There's only well, I mean, it Friends exists one. within Friends and it is now a song. Well, that's true. It's terrible, though. All Phoebe's songs are terrible. It's, is this anyone's actual experience of cats? I've never known a cat that smelled really bad. Some cats have a little pretty... bit of a farting problem. Okay. Yep. <laughs> when I say a little bit, it's like when they're happy. You mean a lot. <laughs> when they're happy, they fart. But they do say, they do make the point in the book, or Pratchett makes the point, that it's not from any known orifice. Mm. So I, I mean, don't know about cats that are just smelly because they smell. Old cats can be a bit smelly. This is a real cat. Thing, mm. It smells like sulfur, like because of the magic that's like within his body, because he can now change easily into a human. Well, maybe, maybe it's something to do with like you know how the magic has a smell. <laughs> it could be, or Grebo has the ability to make a smell happen because he wants people to go away. Yeah, that seems more likely because mm. he's a, well, he's a real cat. He's got all kinds of crazy abilities that we don't want to know about. Mm. Yeah, mm. this is how they meet Senor Basilica. The famous opera singer, because he's the only one who doesn't get out of the coach and sit on the top because it doesn't seem to bother him. And he spends the whole coach ride, or well, most of it, asleep. With Grebo on him. With Grebo on him. So Grebo and him get along quite well. And he also, he, you know, when he does wake up, it's really just to inhale one of their pies. <laughs> um, and a beer. And a beer, uh, which he's very grateful for. Because he doesn't get to have them very much. has to have all these tomato-y foods, even though he can't actually have tomatoes. Yeah. Oh, it's sad... He's allergic to them. It's very sad. And they have the stay in the inn along the way where they realise that he actually does speak Morporkian and that he's from Hank Morpork because they hear him singing in Morporkian. And he asks for more pork. He does. He does. <laughs> uh, and then uh, and then goes back. And But as soon as somebody comes to visit him, he starts singing in whatever. I don't, do they actually say where yeah. he's supposed to be from? He speaks Brindisian. Brindisi is like the equivalent of Italy. It's a melange of Italy and Spain, to be honest, because Senor is is a Spanish. Oh, well, that's true. Honorific, so it has to be it has to be a combination of the two. But interestingly, uh, uh, Brindisi is a drinking song. Hmm. Famously, in Traviata, there's a song called the Brindisi, which is a drinking song, which is the Libiamo. It's like a duet between the consumptive soprano and the jerk tenor. Who claims to love her? Um, but they're at a big party, and uh, he wants to sing a toast, and so they sing about how great it is to have fun and drink. Well, apparently, it's the Italian term for a toast. There you go. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there is a city called Brindisi as well, 
which is in, that it, it's in Italy. would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. But also while they're stopped, there's the interesting thing with the inn owner and his son and the cow that happens, which yeah. I thought was quite... I'd forgotten about that by the end of the book, but it's like a weirdly intense good thing that shows how powerful Granny is. Mm. Yeah. Because they hear, like, they're tucked into bed um, pretty much. They're putting up a barrier against the door in case any <laughs> men rattle the doorknobs. Oh, God. Um, but then. She's such a xenophobe. Like, it's one. It's the one thing where, like, you just, like, Granny, just settle down. They're just people. It's just people from somewhere that's not where you're from. And she's like, no, I can't be having with that. Yeah. I love Annie Ogg's thing. Not at our ages, mate. <laughs> so the inn owner and his wife come with their son who is very ill and also the cow is ill. He thinks it's like a curse upon their house. And mm. so they go into the barn and he's a bit disappointed that she doesn't want a toad because like, how is she going to do any of this? And I just really love yeah. He's like, I know where there's a toad. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> she's like, I know witchy stuff. Like, don't you need witchy stuff? And like, they're like, no, we're not doing do any of that. How do you know where a toad is? But I, I love, I love nanny. <laughs> well, I mean, it's the country. But, uh, but like. They move. I, well, true. That's true. <laughs> you know where it lives, though. Well, yeah. <laughs> you can find one. Um, but then it, I mean, Nanny requests, was it four pork chops? <laughs> oh, yeah. And a pint, and a of, pint of beer. beer. Yeah. And maybe two glasses. <laughs> yeah. it's, and it's like, and that, and that seems a cult. And I'm, I'm listening to that thinking, that just sounds like an old woman trying to catch more food out of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's because he's not entirely satisfied by that request, but no. he's like, well, it's better than nothing. Uh, <laughs> oh, a candle and a deck of cards, then. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then she camps out all night. Now, I got a question about this. I agree with you that the scene is included in order to show how hard Granny Weatherwax is and how you know absolutely confident slash arrogant she is. That this is this is how she handles this situation. But did it feel weird to either of you that? it was granny doing this and not nanny because a baby who's going to die seems very much more nanny Og's purview because she's the one who does all the births and looks after sick children and stuff. Nanny does births, granny does deaths. Okay. That's so I, I have to say, no, it didn't. I understand what you're saying, but I think it's not just about showing how hard granny is. It's about demonstrating something which comes up later, which is that a witch's role is to stand on the edge and make the decision mm, yeah and that's what she's doing she's literally standing on the edge making the decision and f- enforcing it effectively you know she's like the bouncer at the coal face this is this is what witches do yeah mm. do you think death let her win on purpose yes 100 percent. because they have the wink yeah i was sure about that as well yeah i agree it was a really nice death scene because he's like i've got a job to do or oh, you think maybe i shouldn't do it uh good you're giving me an excuse not to do it basically was kind of mm. how it went, which I thought was great. Well, I've just got all these ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> death of the disc world is a bit of a softie. Oh, when yeah, it comes definitely. Down to it. Yeah, yeah. Like it's a hard ass when it needs to be, but only about people treating humans unfairly. Unlike Death and of Rats, cats. who is tough as nails. Oh, God, yeah. Man, that scene was harsh. Yeah. We'll come back to that. Uh, but yeah, that's I, I've forgotten about that. There's so many great bits in this book that I'd forgotten. We had a really big response to this book when we announced this was going to be our next episode and more questions than we normally get. Uh, and a lot of people coming out and saying this is one of their favourites. And I, it's one of my favourites too. And I've forgotten how much I liked it. And I, and I think it's there's a couple of aspects of it that are a bit like, oh, it's a bit tedious. But mostly it's great. There's just so many good things in it. Murder mystery, Andrew Lloyd Webber, a ghost. Yeah. Witches, the witches. Yeah. The watch. Is yeah. in there. 
I mean, there's some what, really good lines as well. Some really beautiful lines, like his eyes were dragged to the end of the sentence because he's so like into Nanny's book. Mm. And it's just, there's, like, he always has beautiful turn of phrase, but it feels like there's a concentration of them in this book. Mm. He's really hit his stride by this point. Mm. Like he really knows what he's doing. We really know who these characters are. And now he can just like tell a story about them and get into their heads a bit more. Yeah. There's a level of comfort with the world and with the characters you know, there's some things that annoy me. I laughed at them when I first read it mm. and then I grew up and now I maybe feel like they're not so yeah. funny, yeah. that they're cheap shots. Um, a lot of the fat jokes, for instance. Yeah. So many of them. cheap shots. And, and they're, they're cheap because they're not laughing with her, they're laughing at her. Mm. And that's what really annoys me. It's like I'm a very large girl. I have friends who are very overweight, very big girls. We call ourselves fat. We have no problem with that. We don't mind making jokes. We don't mind jokes about it. But what we mind is when people try to demean us as a result of that. That's hard. That's awful. And that's what he does with it, which is really unfortunate. I feel like I get kicked in the gut with it. Mm. And and I love this book. This is one of my favourites. Um, but I do feel like it, it kicks me in the guts every time. So Yeah. Mm. It was, we had a lot, like I say, we had a lot of comments on this book and a lot of them are about that, you know, about the, the fat shaming nature of those jokes. But we also got some comments from people who were like, their perspective was, I didn't mind that because it, it felt to me very real. Like that's how people treat you in the real world. And I think yeah. there is an element of that. But in fiction, you know, you want to be making comment on that and nobody is ever told they're wrong to think about Agnes that way. It's And it, the, the authorial voice talks about her that way. Talks about her and thinks about her yeah. that way. And yeah. that's where the real problem comes in. If it was just presented as the view of other people, that yeah. would be different. But going back to that, though, that, that concept that it's okay to portray it this way because this is how it is in the real world. When people are talking about how we need to get, for instance, more representation of women or we need to get more representation of black people as doctors on television shows. For example, to take a very specific example, but mm. if you say more more positive portrayals of something and people say, but that's not how it is in the real world. It's like, and it never will be until we actually start portraying it that way. Yeah. So I, I absolutely fight against that idea that it's okay to do it because that's how it is in the real world. Mm. Does that make it right to show it? Does it make it right to do that? That's the question I ask myself anyway. Mm. And, and that's, I think, where it grates for me. Um, yes, I recognise absolutely everything that Agnes has gone through. Absolutely everything happened to me a hundred times or more and that doesn't make it right Mm. it doesn't mean that that's what I necessarily want to see talk about me positively I've got a lot of other attributes that are positive that you can talk about and and my fat is not a bad thing anyway I mean that's a huge huge subject area to get into but it's also a huge you know it's as you say it's a huge shadow that looms over the book I mean we got Mm. so many comments about it it's because it is constant, like yeah. it, every other time that Agnes is, comes into a, a scene. And Henry. And Henry, yeah. although, you know, it hasn't Let's had any impact same. on his career. like and he Or his romantic life. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. No. Whereas Agnes like, is apparently resigned to a life of just being by herself in a doormat. There's that great line of just she may as well put welcome on her chest and just lie down at the doorstep of the universe. And that was just mm. very sad and bleak. Yes, yeah. it is. And yet she persisted. 
yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And that's what I love about Agnes and, and that's the redeeming feature of her characterization is that she does just keep pushing on through the universe. She's stubborn. Mm. She recognises these barriers for what they are and, and she, she just keeps going. It's not perfect, not by any stretch, but she's a work in progress and flawed and very self-conscious about that and, and just works really hard to fight against it. Yeah. And she doesn't get a break in this book. Hmm. Not really. Before the witches get there, Agnes is learning what's going on in the opera house. She learns of the OG, the opera ghost, <laughs> who I now are now picturing as Ice T, right? Whose album, original gangster, is the term is the reason for that term OG. Uh, but she learns about the OG, who watches the opening night of every opera and sends critical feedback to the producers. Um, With lots of exclamation marks to show that he's not quite sane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and But has otherwise been a pretty benign Ooh, oh, figure. Oh, wait, no. no the, criti- yeah. the, the critiques are not, that don't include exclamation marks at all, I think. Actually, that, that's right. Cause the note They're the very begin- measured. It comes to it's when some, a plot point later. It's yeah. when there's like weird unexplained deaths or yeah, other disasters well, that you start to get these exclamation marks. Well, now there's like the opera ghost has changed in recent times and seems to be murdering people. And it seems it's mostly people who have seen the ghost. The first one is somebody who's tangled up in the stage rigging. Um, is he dead, the first no. one? He's not, is he? Uh, he's got paint he's, in his ear. And yeah. Agnes is the only one who keeps her head. Everyone else is like, oh, it's the ghost, the ghost. And Christine joins in even though she hasn't really seen anything. And they keep trying to make it really dramatic by being like, oh, he had eyes like holes in this. And she's like, oh, you mean like a mask? And she, they're like, I, eyes like holes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> and then this is, so you say, so you see what's really there is to Agnes, who seems to be the only one capable of actually being a reliable witness. Yeah, mm. I just saw like a white flapping thing up the top. Yeah. I'd yeah. just like to say that opera people, as a rule, are quite excitable and rumours and strange things will run around uh, backstage very quickly. Mm. Yes, there can be a level of hysteria, but this is a little overblown. <laughs> I mean... I found it very relatable because, you know, I have a background in theatre and yes, opera is different to theatre, and I, I think that yeah. distinctions that they make in the book are, are accurate. But there's a so there's so much overlap, like the the superstitions, the sort of heightened dramatic nature of the people performing it. I mean, that extends to all musical theatre, but also just just theatre theatre as well. Yeah, you know. And someone made the point recently that you know, as a performer, you are being asked to tap into the most personal and emotional parts of yourself and put them on display. But at the same time, you're also in an industry where you are constantly being rejected. And always having to find new jobs and new work, and mm. so you have to be emotionally res- you have to be both of those things, and it's that's hard. Like it's a hard act to balance, and that's true of a lot of creative pursuits. You know, writers I think are in a bit of the same boat, and they have to be able to put, depending on the kind of writing you do, but you have to put a certain amount of yourself and your emotion into your work, and you're also trying to get published, and you get a lot of rejections from publishers and editors, and not to say that all actors and all performers and all artistic or creative people are the same, but there is an element of that, I think, in all of those pursuits. Absolutely. You tend to have temperament groupings within theatres. So um, the people who work backstage tend to be very level-headed, just just by nature. They tend to be calm. Then you've got the orchestra who are there to do a job. They're, They're consummate professionals. In amateur world, they're the only ones getting paid, usually, yeah. as, as performers. 
because uh, the singers are not usually. They've trained decades and they just get in there and they do their work and they do it so well and they get out. And then you've got the ones that actually get up on the stage and they can tend to be highly strung. That's absolutely true. But this is really exaggerated. Oh, yeah. Yeah, obviously it's going to be exaggerated, but it is yeah. very ex- exaggerated. There's a really good song in Phantom of the Opera, the musical. Well, obviously not the book because there's no songs in that play. Well, <laughs> well there oh, are no. songs. Yeah, no, but like, not that you can what? hear. But like, yeah, there's the songs in the opera in the book that there's not yeah, songs about but the You can hear story. them if you're Walter Plinge because he just plays music. No, in the book of the Phantom of the Sorry, Opera. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, about prima donna where the owners are trying to settle down the, the diva. And by telling her how great she is because oh, she's yes. all like a fluster. Prima donna. I thought that she was going to, like the, the prima donna in this was going to have more of a role, but she just kind of had a bit of resentment and then just disappeared. She's barely in it. Yeah. I did find it interesting, like to talk a bit more about Agnes's situation in this book, that, you know, they, they recognize that here's the, here's the prima donna and she's, you know, she's a large woman and she's like the star of the opera or one mm. of them. But they make that distinction that, yeah, but Agnes is like a young woman. And so she can't be that yet, even though she can probably sing better than that woman already. There has to be the remove, like that you can be a middle-aged woman playing a 17-year-old, but you can't be a 17-year-old playing the same thing. Yeah. And this is definitely not the way opera was. Historically speaking, you could have singers playing right within their type. The problem is that if you're talking about a role like Sieglinde, who is a a young woman who meets and falls in love with her twin because this is opera uh, (laughs) and they have a baby together. But anyway, but you can't sing Sieglinde as a teenage girl. It's way too heavy vocally for you. Like you you really wouldn't be wanting to think about doing that until your mid thirties at the earliest. I mean, that's the only time I'd want to have a baby with my twin. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) You'd want to be prepared. Exactly. (laughs) You know, that's the normal response, but yes. So opera, but it's, that's the thing. It's like vocally, you need to be at a certain age and a certain stability with your voice and have had a certain amount of training to Mm. be able to tackle these roles. Yeah. It's the same way, you know, in Hollywood you have all these actors who are in their 20s or even early 30s playing teenagers on, you know, high school shows. The OC. Yeah. 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 We don't talk about the OC here. (laughs) Oh, Oh, yes, I forgot. 90210. (laughs) That's fine, yes. Uh, No, I'm kidding. Buffy. Um, Luke, Luke Perry. Yeah, it's the same kind of deal. I feel so so there's there's a method behind it mm. now I mean Agnes obviously is unusual in that she's got this amazing voice very young but and supernatural so. it's, it's supernatural but but she's you know and she could do these things that but, but what she won't have is the emotional maturity behind it mm. either yeah so there's there's that level of unreality with it as well but neither does Christine no so no well and I that's don't know the problem. I think you get the impression that she's actually a pretty good actor I think she, um, she is can't a very sing, good actor. But she can probably act and, I yeah. thought she and look the part. Good I at looking know. good on stage and well, people just fill in the gaps around which, that. Which look, I'm gonna say something slightly disparaging about the opera. That is a large part of acting in the opera. Like there's not a lot of dialogue and there's not a lot of, you know it's it's very would you is it there's fair to say it's acting. melodramatic? That's what most opera I've experienced certainly is like. Like it's not, you know, it's not like I believe this emotional moment. It's like this is all very heightened emotional 
business, like you are representing something rather than being a real person when or, you're playing an opera augmented part. Augmented reality, perhaps, like just a slightly heightened reality. I wouldn't yeah. say sort of... Oh, it's definitely AR. No, mm. no, it's absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it, it does it for a reason. And the reason is the moments of biggest emotion are the moments where that high drama is suddenly withdrawn. Mm. And every everything is, so to speak, naked on stage. There's this moment in, and I go back to it again because I, it's it's my favourite opera, it's, uh, La Traviata. There's this moment in the second act towards the end where they're at a party, they're always at parties in Traviata, except for the third act where she's dying in her bedroom. It takes a whole act to die. But anyway, Alfredo has just, who's the, the jerky tenor guy, has just delivered a really crushing crushing insult to Violetta who's the soprano and there's this whole this builds up to this moment where you know the the Alfredo's father sees him do it and tells him off Alfredo says oh my god I don't know why I just did that and then the chorus has a bit of a thing about it as well because the chorus does and then there's this sudden moment where you just get this sudden little string vamp and then Violetta just sings this very tiny line over the top of it. possibly understand how much I loved you with this heart of mine mm. and and it's just this tiny tiny little phrase so but you have to build up that big drama to get that contrast to get that that huge massive amount of emotion out of this tiny little thing if you just did it at the start like that it, you know it would just be throwaway mm. so yes there's a lot of melodrama absolutely uh but it, it it builds around it for a reason this book is about that heightened world of opera emotion mm. and yet it's also the first book in a while that really brings the story of a Discworld book back to very personal stakes. Like there's no creatures from the dungeon dimensions threatening to burst in. There's no thing that is trying to get a hold on the Discworld and change the course of its history. Like even in Men at Arms where like if the gun had its way, you know, everybody would have a gun and it would change the way that the world works. There's nothing like that happening here. It's all about what's happening to the people in the opera house. And at the same time, there's this heightened opera going on. So I think this is a really interesting contrast there. Mm. Yeah. Can I say who the bad guy is? Yeah, I think we yeah, can jump ahead. That's fine. The, the bad guy is Saltzella. Um, spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> Didn't that guy kill Mozart? I'm hoping. I'm, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so Bucket is talking to Saltzella about why people like the ghost. And Saltzella says, like isn't quite the right word. It would be more correct to say that uh, they think he's lucky. Well, they thought he was anyway. And then as an aside in his head, so this is the supervillain aside, which I love, and you wouldn't understand a thing about that, you coarse little cheesemonger, he added to himself. Cheese is cheese. Milk goes rotten naturally. You don't have to make it happen by having several hundred people wound up until their nerves go twang. Hmm. And that is literally what you do with opera. It, like people are so 
on edge, generally speaking. They try really hard not to be, but, but I mean, you think about how many people are involved in it. You've got the orchestra, which could be 50 people. You've got the chorus, which could be 50 or 60 people, or even 100, depending on what you're doing. You've got your principals, so there might be 10 of those. Your got- elephants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've never got to work with elephants, maybe one day. Um, you've got your backstage crew, um, you've got your creatives, so your director, music director, conductor, everyone, and you, you put them all in this big box and you can't go outside. And the, the cast can't go out once they're in costume and everyone else can't go outside because then no one else would know where they were when they needed them. Mm. And And they're trying to steer this huge almost unmanageable ship into a safe harbor which is to get to the end of the show and have no one die (laughs) you know Mm. have no one fall off the stage have no one's voice crack um you know all these other little things and yeah it's that is exactly when I read that that description is the best description I've ever read of what you're trying to do Mm. with opera yeah but Speaking of trying to get through without people dying, the bodies do start stacking up. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Quite quickly. Yes, the ghost has turned murderous. People have died. Um, and the ghost sends a new note, which is to say, I want Christine to play this part in this particular opera that you're about to perform tomorrow. And they're like, that's not going to that's not gonna work. But then, you know, also in the middle of the night, the ghost starts talking to Christine saying, now I want you to attend. And she's like, I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. She gets out of her room, goes into Agnes's room, which is next door. Agnes decides that she's not going to get any sleep if, if um, she's in there. So also she... because she literally takes Agnes's bed. Like she just jumps in. They're not next door. She's she like, does. She just, yeah, she and just pours under the cupboard. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, super yeah. rude. That's was... right. She gets up to let her in. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and I so thought it was like. in bed at the same time. If, so as I was saying earlier, if it was, can I stay in your room? It's cool. But she's like, no, no, we'll just, we'll just swap. You deal with this. Yeah. And she go, and so she hears the the ghosts in, or well, presumably the ghosts' instructions, a mysterious voice saying, "I'm going to teach you how to sing this role." And she pretends to be Christine by imitating her voice, perfectly, um, and suggesting, "But Agnes is a better singer than me." And the ghost's like, "Perhaps, but you, I will teach you to be a good singer." Yeah, I can't. No, he says, "Well, I can teach you to uh, sing like her. I cannot, I cannot train her to look like you." Yeah. Mm. Oh. Oh. I know it's gross, Harsh. and and when you when you learn later on who's saying all of that, it's like. Oh, I was hoping that it would be the murderer who was also doing that, but like no, it's mm. the it's the good ghost. Well, you know, murderers, well, supervillains usually do listen to opera. It's true. It's very yeah. or, or or you know classical music of some sort. In fact, mm. there's that one song which I can never remember the name of, which gets played in every fancy, often evil villain party in every film. The piece of music I'm talking about, of course, is this one. Luigi Boccherini's String Quartet in E from Opus 11, Number 5, better known as the Celebrated Minuet, written in 1771 and since heard in every scene depicting a fancy upper-class party since 1933, perhaps most famously in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I was watching uh, the new season of Mindhunter. They show these little vignettes of the guy who actually is going to turn out to be BTK, who's this terrible serial killer. Oh, okay, right. I, was say, I don't know who that <laughs> a is. A real-life actual serial killer. But, but the producers of this thing have got him sitting in a library with a Walkman listening to opera. Oh, so, so I was like, thank, thanks, thanks, thanks. There are, you know, there are, there are positive representations of, of people listening to opera. 
Uh, my favourite one is from the Doctor Who Telly movie from 1996, where Grace, the doctor who operates on the doctor, is listening to Puccini. And the doctor's like, I met Puccini. <laughs> you know, and you're like, yeah. And they, they carried that on for like the eighth doctor's portrayal. He's always referring to Puccini like he loves a good opera. I so, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole thing. Anyway, that's a whole other podcast. Yes. So, um, yes, people are starting to die. Um and Bucket and Salzella, they get the letter that says we want Christine to play. They're like, okay, we're going to do it. But she can't sing it. They decide to go the Singing in the Rain route. I've never actually seen Singing in the Rain. Talkies are coming in. So yeah. a silent oh. film actress who's really popular has a terrible voice. And so they hire someone yes. with a nice voice to oh. do the recordings for her. But yeah, um, so I, I immediately thought of, um, I keep trying to say the sound of music. It's no Singing in the Rain yeah. where they have a voice double. Oh. Yeah, wow. It just felt like a lot of different musicals coming together. A lot together. of musical references in here, yeah. So, look, this does actually happen, but it's mm. uh, I've never seen it happen for this reason. I've seen it happen when someone loses their voice. Yeah. Um, and they mentioned that in the text that, like, yeah. this is well, normally was, when we do this. I was at an opera earlier this year um, where they're only doing one session of it and the lead singer had lost her voice so she did all the acting the conductor came out on stage beforehand and was like oh she's lost her voice so and then he introduced the singer and said she'll be singing from the opera pit that's right that's and, more usual yeah, yeah. That, so you sing you, nice. you sing from the pit because the staging is often quite complicated and you can't necessarily train up another singer who knows the vocal part to do the stage work in time but it does happen that, that definitely does happen but yeah. i've never seen it happen for this reason no well one would hope it doesn't really happen i <laughs> hope it does not happen for this reason what made me really angry in this like it was like after christine got all the accolades and all the flowers sent her a thing she made agnes deal with them while she like flopped about on a bed and in the end she just said in like a sweet voice she's like oh you're singing a bit loud and like it's hard for people to hear me if you're doing that and i'm like is that her seriously not realizing what happened, think, or is it like a dig? Well, this is what I was saying both, before. Like, like mm. I think we're, I think it's genuine. I think she doesn't understand mm. that people don't like her singing. She's not a great portrayal of a person <laughs> in some ways because she's so dumb. Mm. She's so dumb, and I mean, look, she's entertainingly dumb mm. in terms of the jokes, but also she is that stereotype of. You know, a, a dumb actor who mm. who thinks she's great and doesn't understand that she's awful. But she's she, a walking Dunning Kruger effect. Yes, a walking portrayal of a dumb blonde, I guess, mm. effectively, which really frustrates me as well. Being a blonde, you know, her agency effectively gets taken away, and and that's why I think she steals bits of agency back later mm. on. But she's like, this is where it all doesn't make sense to me. If you are on stage and someone is singing behind you with a, a voice as powerful as what we imagine Agnes would have, there is no chance that you don't know what's going on. This, this is my technical gripe, I guess. Sure. Yeah. You know, the other part of the technical gripe is that there is no way that the OG does not know that it's Agnes he's mm. training and not Christine. There's like a willful ignorance throughout this book. Like mm. Christine wants to believe that she's that good. So yeah. even in the moment, she might be like, oh, something's going on here. She seems like the sort of person who'd be able to convince herself in the moments afterwards that, no, actually I was good. And you slowly just tweak your memory to I'm be like. I'm sure she does. And I, I feel like that's yeah. it. And also perhaps Opera Ghost is like, no, I trained her so well that this is how it went. Like there's mm. a will for ignorance. Like I agree with you in that mm. it's, 
they have to know. Yeah. Well, look, I think, you know, Agnes has magical singing powers, so (laughs) she could probably imitate somebody else's singing voice. But But when she hilariously, like, sing it how Christine would sing it. Oh, I love it. Like, wrong with exclamation. (laughs) Maledetta! So good. It's so funny. So good. Uh, (laughs) Now, we we need to get back to the plot, I think. Sorry. No, it's fine. But it's just that we we need to get through it a bit more. But, you know, this is around the point where Granny and Nanny arrive in Ankh-Morpork. They see Agnes in the street, but Agnes pretends not to see them. And Granny and Nanny also pretend not to have seen her. Yeah, they they let her have that fiction. Yeah, yeah. yeah, They know, though. They know that she's there. Um, They go to see the publisher. Who just sort of turns Mr. them away? And, and I was like, is, "Is he having a dispute with his publisher? Because a lot of publisher shade is being I don't thrown." No, I don't. Like, I don't think, think so. he was, but it was just quite a lot of. They just love money. They have a bit of back and forth with the publisher. They go away. They come back. They finally manage to get all of Nanny's money, which from ends him. up being like three and a half thousand dollars, which is like an absolute fortune in um, super fortune. Terms. Yeah, mm. they can't even comprehend. And Nanny keeps saying it out loud. She's like, "I just want to say it. I can't believe that's an amount of and money." Somehow she keeps it all up her knicker leg, which is like, yes, I love that. Yeah, which is like <laughs> such an Edith Blyton thing. Yeah, uh, when she she says, "I'm just going to the bank," and turns around to raise it. <laughs> These twangs and rustles. Yeah, it's great. But um, it turns out Granny had an alternative plan for the money. She was just, it was means to an end. It wasn't just to make Nanny rich. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And as she points out, like, oh, or oh, witches share something. And she's like, oh, you say that because you don't have anything to share. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Enrico Basilica has That's given right. them two tickets. Mm. And, it, and I love that whole scene where they're like, what's this? Stalls? Stalls? We should be in a. And, you know, she looks at the sign in the gods. And it's like, <laughs> you want to sort tickets in the stalls for tickets in the gods? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And the, for people who are not familiar with theatre, gods is is like the cheap seats. Mm, yeah, like you're up in the air and you're looking Stalls. down from above and you're further back from the stage. Yeah, Stalls are the good seats. So it's like, you know. They're... Can I just say I very much love Nanny's first stall because she's like, oh. I wear fur but I'm humane about it because yeah. it's just Grebo. Beauty like... without cruelty. <laughs> and, and yeah, 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 yeah. Madam, your, your stall is eating my chocolates. Yes. Uh, oh. He's only after, what is it, the nougat world? The truffles? The truffles, yeah. yeah. If you show him the little map. <laughs> That's great. Um, now, they, this, this so is good. where they sense that something's not going quite right. Nanny yeah. tries to get into box eight, which is one of the opera boxes. Now, these are still up in the air, kind of like the gods, but they're much closer to the stage and they're a little private space. And a lot of old theatres and old opera houses certainly will have them, even some newer ones if they're really fancy. I've been in boxes. Yes. Right. I saw my first opera in one and it was very fancy. Really? Yeah. Wow. We are um, travelling through Europe for like a group of us, so we like paid for a box like together. Wow. And I think it was on a cheap day, like we went to Mandanay or something, so it wasn't crazy expensive. We booked well in advance and it was Cosi Fantuti, which um, is great, but also the plot is like, Ugh. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, aren't women ridiculous? Everyone thinks that's so is everyone, but it's actually it's cosi fan tutte, mm. which is so are all women. It's literally the translation of it. So you've got that, that that e on the end makes it the most horrible, sexist, revolting piece. I mean, I I love it. The music's beautiful, but wow, Mozart. I could do a whole podcast on Mozart this is where you get that thing later on that you know uh, people are not going to recognize their spouse because they're wearing a tiny mask and that's literally what happens in Cosi Fantute is that they're wearing the tiniest disguises and often these days it's done where they literally the, the men just come back wearing false mustaches oh like Varen's yeah <laughs> 
and that's it and that's it and that's the and and so then their and their fiancés are supposed to not not recognize them mm-hmm. it's 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 a staple of the old yeah. school theater and fast but the, i do like that first bit though when they first go to see the opera you get the nice sort of discussion between nanny and granny about what they think about the opera what they think is going on granny tries to get into the booth and could but doesn't because she sees how much it's going to disturb mrs plinge the cleaner and she decides to take mrs plinge home nanny instead goes to try and sort out what's happening with the opera and help people out because somebody's died. They find Mr. Pounder. Because he's then... not revealed on stage. He's just no. dead behind the stage. Then there's people freaking out and Nanny's yeah. trying to get involved and see what's going on. And this is where Granny walks Mrs. Plinge home and she lives somewhere near or in the shades and they get beset by thieves and Granny's Granny. about to go, oh, you did, you picked the wrong. And then, then and she's the, like the opera the... ghost <laughs> arrives and fights them all off. Yeah. Except it doesn't really fight them off so much as like make them fight each other off. Yeah. Which is pretty great. It's awesome. Yeah. Mm. And look, this was a question we got, and I'm, I'm going to get to this one a little bit early because I think it's going to be a thread mm. through the book of, you know, what were your first guesses as to who the opera ghost was? And by this stage of the book, we have met Walter Plinge who is very much portrayed, and I thought this is so clever, I'd, forgot, I'd forgotten about this till I was reading it, but he's wearing a beret and he's very accident prone and he's very daft and s- says stupid things. He's clearly... Um, Someone is doing Frank him. Spencer. He's Frank Spencer, um, who, of course, later goes on to play the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, yeah, because so it's, Michael, it's Crawford. Michael Crawford. Yeah. Yeah, and I loved that whole thing. So that kind of made it fairly obvious, and I don't know that I ever thought somebody else was the ghost... But I also can't remember, because I read it for the first time so long ago, whether I ever tweaked that there were clearly two ghosts, um, which is, uh, spoiler alert, the plot twist that happens. Um, did you did you ever think it was anybody else? I thought it was two ghosts um, from quite early on, but I thought Walter had a twin because oh. there was that thing about, what do you mean, like, Walter walks you home, but you also have to wait for Walter. There was a thing and I was like, oh, maybe there's two people who look exactly the same because they were talking about how every time they saw the ghost, then yeah. Walter would appear. I'm like, yeah, but what if he's got a twin? I did like, think A Walter ego point. of some kind, but like, <laughs> which is the case. Like, in the, like, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is a, that was a good one. I thought it was going to be like an evil twin that they sort of have to look after and like hide away in the opera. There was something that she says that made me think that for a moment. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not the plot though. Yeah, because um, it's early on when she's like trying to explain like she has to wait for Walter and something yeah, yeah. else. So, mm. Miff, did you did you think it was anybody else at this uh, stage? No, I I have to admit that up until the point when Granny says, really think about what you're saying there. You could tell who it is because he was wearing a mask, mm. and up to that point, it hadn't t- quite twigged for me um, yeah. when I first read it. So yeah. no, I I, I thought. I thought that he was – it didn't make sense, but I thought that he was the bad guy and the good guy. Yeah. And also because, you know, he, he conveniently disappears just before the ghost turns up in the scene because mm. he's with the the body behind the stage and Nanny tells him to stick around and then she turns around and he's gone, even though he clearly is the kind of boy who does what he's told. Mm. It's not, you know, too obvious, but I think it's fairly clear. But then you also have this misdirection with – but Andre. we don't believe that he would kill anyone. And then Andre, yeah, um, the band leader or musician um, who Agnes gets very suspicious of. I like, I'd forgotten about him in this book. Like I, he, he's, and when he turned up, I was like, oh, he is a bit, he's a bit sus, isn't he? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then it turns out there's a reason why he seems a bit sus. Yeah. Which is great. Mm. I thought like for a moment, I was like, oh, is he 
an actual ghost? Is he talking to anyone else? <laughs> <laughs> like the janitor in yeah, the... In, oh. in the first season of Scrubs, I was like, is yeah. he going to be a real ghost? But then he was not. Because yeah. I was like, I'm suspect of him, but I think I'm supposed to be suspect of him. Therefore, there's going to be a twist and maybe it's that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, twist is good, though. I, well, Very I mean, jump straight. Yeah. <laughs> there's all these great little things that make you go, oh, I see. Um, one of the things I liked was that um, while talking to Andre, Agnes is reading through the music for the operas and realizes that mm. there's a lot of people credited as Walter Plinge. Mm. She's like, is that Walter? And it turns out, no, that's the name people use when they're playing a role that they don't want to be known for. So they use this other name. And I, it wasn't clear from the text of the book whether that's a, like a cruel joke on Walter or whether he's been named that because he was born in the opera. Yes. And I kind of thought it'd be nicer if it was the latter, but it's not clear from the text which way around it was, or I, I didn't think so. Is there a real name like that that's used in opera? Like, because like there's there's names like that that get used in film. Um, I, if there is, I don't know it, but I know that people will do that. You know, someone who normally sings principal roles might not want to be remembered for doing like a compromario, which is a much smaller, mm. often comic relief type role. I just um, wanted to point out that scene earlier where cause Agnes comes up and she's observing Andre and she talks about him eating something absentmindedly while staring at a sheet of music. And the number of times I've come across singers or or a conductor friend or someone like that and they're they're supposedly trying to be do you know eating and they just forget to eat and they're just reading through their score and and conducting things in the air and it's it's absolutely a, a true to life picture like he's he's done for someone who didn't know much about this world he's done an incredible amount of research yeah after all this stuff is happening oh and also there's the there's a little hint that you know Walter's sitting on the stage by himself and has instantly befriended Gribo, who he calls Mr. Cat. Yeah. What he is doing is he's listening to the music coming out of the walls. Because it's imbued with music. And what he's calling or summoning in his mind is a particular performance. And this is also very true to life. People will have favourite performances of particular operas. And so that's exactly how opera people, opera fanatics are. They they will have their favourite performances and their favourite conductors and that's what they want to listen to. So it was um, – but that's what he's doing. He's listening to a performance of an opera. Yeah. And then um, later he sings. Yeah. We find out. Well, in order to find out what's going on in box number eight, Granny and Nanny hatch their plan to spend – Thousands of dollars dressing Granny up as uh, one of the knobs. Which it's is... just like a great montage. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like, from, like three quarters of the way through a film before they like break into the high rollers room in the casino. This would be like if they made this into a film, which we can only hope they do one day, this would be so good. It would be one of the best bits of the film. It'd it be, would be awesome. And the comedic beat when they finally get off Granny's like boots and stuff and she's got perfect feet. Oh. <laughs> It's yeah. like, well, they're spending twenty dollars. They're going to do something. Yeah, 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 yeah. But and they get into that lunch um, with with Henry Slug, who's oh, yes. still in character, and they've been trying to make a special pasta for him. But like, it's been on the griddle for an hour, and it's just gone oh, yeah. black instead of soft. So Nanny says, "Don't worry, I'll take over the cooking for this meeting with the producer and the artistic yes. director." And, and Chekhov's the joyous snacks to- comes in. Oh yes. yeah, I'll take yeah, I'll take care of the pudding. <laughs> well, not just the pudding. Like the yeah. pudding is the is the icing on the cake so to speak but it's yeah they eat the things that she cooks up and all of the men at the table are like i'm just not gonna stand up right now <laughs> and then they like accidentally spill cold water on themselves and oh, it's just go for a run great scene really really funny except for henry slug yeah he's uh unaffected he's like yeah. no give me some more <laughs> i'll just eat some more and granny who does eat some 
but manages to avoid its effects and then later channels that into <laughs> boiling a glass of yes. water just by holding it. Oh, I thought that was great. That's all to get her into box eight for the performance so that mm. she can check out the ghosts. And Agnes, of course, is not doing nothing. She's off investigating things. The bowels of the building. She, uh, Yeah, she figures out that there's a secret passage behind the mirror in her room, which is super creepy. Like, the ghosts oh, yeah. could just come into Christine's room at any time. It's a classic thing from Phantom of the Opera, though, because that's like the amazing special effect that everyone sort of was like, wow, how do they do that? Yeah. Apparently, in yeah, the real uh... opera where it is, there is an underground cavern full of water. Like my old piano teacher told me, so she snuck in. Apparently you're not supposed to go in there during it. I was like, what's this wild life you led, piano teacher? <laughs> but she was like, oh, yeah, we just snuck off from the tour and went down into the bottom of the thing. I'm like, that's that's against the rules. But, yeah, apparently it is full of water and things. So Rule breaking. I don't think there's a boat with a skull face. But, no, probably um, she, not. she didn't mention it. Where, so. does he, where does he get that from? That's ridiculous. Anyway, Agnes does go down into the flooded cellars, which they've been mentioned in advance, and so we know that they're there. I thought it was, it was a nice touch that like she's very smart. She doesn't normally get lost, but she does get lost down there. It's really labyrinthine. Mm. And then meets Walter, who's down there doing Mr. Pounder's job because Mr. Pounder's been killed. He's catching rats. Possibly um, including Mr. Pounder. Yes, because when he wakes up dead, so to speak, um, having been killed by the opera ghost, uh, he does not meet the regular death. He meets the grim squeaker. <laughs> Squeak. Yeah. Squeak. Who says like one word to him, but it's a very meaningful word. Yes. And there's that great bit where he says, you know, I don't believe in reincarnation as he slowly finds himself being transformed into a rat. <laughs> he says, but reincarnation believes in you. Mm. Oh, I love it. So creepy. It's, it's so very good. harsh, I thought, though. But I mean, it's like circle. It's well, tidy. I think I think the problem with Mr. Pounder is that he took a bit too much joy in oh, his work. He's a bit work. too cruel. He was That's like the best enough, at it. Then. Like he won the prize like yeah. years in a row. Oh, like, yeah. that, that was the impression I got of him. Also, so he's Mr. Pounder. It sounds like he's just squashing them. Oh, he's definitely yeah. selling them to McDonald's. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or the, if he shrinks down to rat size, does that make him a quarter pounder? Oh, uh, that's very more good. Like, more Not like a 12th even pounder. close. <laughs> a 20th pounder. He's in a real pickle. <laughs> that was really cheesy. When Agnes meets Walter doing Mr. Pounder's job down in the cellars, he agrees to lead her out. But she suddenly is like putting two and two together and going, have you seen the ghost? And his immediate response, such a great sequence where he says, yes. one month, it's wrong to tell lies. He's like, yeah, okay, but have you seen the ghost? And he's like, yes. It's like, where did you last see the ghost? In the ballet training room. Okay. And then he leaves. And I think she knows what to expect in yeah. there. But she goes in to look and she opens the ballet training room. And of course, it's, you know, it's one of those classic ballet rooms where they've got the bars on these mirrored walls so that everybody can watch themselves doing the moves and make sure they're doing it right. And she can't handle it. She doesn't like mirrors, which is... It's a bit too. It's a bit double edged that comment because it's like, is that another fat joke, or is that because she's a witch, or is it both? I wasn't. I think it was a bit of both. I think it's, it's a bit both. Of both. Yeah, um, but that's where he saw the ghost because obviously he saw himself as the ghost in the mirror, and so she's sure that it's him. But the only person she tells about this is Andre, which is weird because I'm like, I'm suspicious of you. Well, I think maybe she's like, oh, I don't have to be suspicious of you anymore because now I know that Walter is the ghost. More than mm. one person can be bad. Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I don't know. And also he's, Andre's got that thing where he seems to be flirting with her. Mm. Yeah. And he's, and he's very single-minded too, which is, you know, he's very wrapped up in his music, mm. you know, and, and that comes across so clearly. 
I think that she would feel a level of trust for him on the basis of that. She's just not about some of the ways that he does things. That's all. Like she doesn't like being touched. That's very clear. And he's a bit of a touchy-feely type, which is kind of typical of music people. And theatre people. Theatre people. Yeah, we're all like that. Yeah. (laughs) But Agnes has much higher boundaries than than most people in the theatre, so which is another sign that she doesn't really belong there, of the fact that she isn't really where she's supposed to be, um, which is what you kind of get all the way along. Yeah. I think it's true that she loves singing and music, but she doesn't really like anything else about the opera. Mm. Like I I really felt like the rest of it is all too fake for you. Like you don't like this you're just here because it's where you can go if you want to be a singer yes and you have the voice like you can do it but this is not what you really want to do with it yes I, I think that she feels the same unease about it that granny does and you know she's kind of our naive guide through the intricacies of, of the weirdness of opera you know, when she's reading through all of the program notes and trying to understand the plot and they say to her don't try to understand the plot yeah it's like to an extent that's kind of true (laughs) it doesn't help you very much sometimes to understand the plot and and she's doing her best but she's struggling Hmm. but she's also struggling with confidence in her own ability to work this out because this almost as soon as she's confided in andre that she thinks walter's the ghost she meets walter and tries to tell him i know you're the ghost he wanders off and almost immediately the ghost is glimpsed Hmm. and she's like well, that can't have been Walter. Like, he was just here. Like, he kind of changed and gotten, you know, and it's it's actually not clear if that is the Walter ghost or not because, mm. as we find out later, he can pretty much do it instantly. But I think that's the moment where you go, well, I'm so sure. And even I was, like, reading it and I was like, I'm pretty sure I remember Walter the ghost. But I, And by this point, I'd remembered, yeah, there's definitely two ghosts. And I kind of figured out who it was from memory. Like, I can't claim to be clever because I'd read it before. <laughs> but... I was like, oh, I think I know what's going on here. The opera is hemorrhaging money. Is a, yeah, it's yeah. losing lots of money. Mm. And, um, the, and the books are just a shambles. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And everything costs so much. Well, and, and rather in the same way that governments will make unpopular policy announcements on a Friday afternoon when it can be buried under all the sport for the weekend, mm-hmm. every time... Bucket sits down to look at the books, some disaster happens. Oh, yeah. Mm, so there's these true. constant distractions to stop him from seeing it. Um, and it's not until Granny goes in to the office and has a look at the books that she realises what goes on. And they, they say, what is it, Granny Weatherwax was uh, grudgingly literate but keenly numerate. Mm. And she works out really with just a glance what what is actually going on. Which is also Chekhov's joy of snacks because we've seen that at the start of the the story where she works out how much money if they've sold these books and they've sold this many copies and they've sold it for this much, then, you know, they've made this much money off it and Nanny should have some of that. So, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting addition to her character. And also down in the bowels of the building now, a whole lot of stuff's gone down in the opera. Oh, yeah, well, we haven't even gotten to the the actual performance that night because there's a soiree... (laughs) Um, a swarry swarry we got fish eggs yeah <laughs> after having successfully purchased box eight so that she'll be allowed to go in there and see what happens they insist that she has to go in there with a man so they turn Grebo back into a person and dress him up as a you know in, in black finery so he looks like a sexy pirate man <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna say it because that's what it is who right? drinks milk who drinks milk <laughs> like he's Oh, anyway, we've got a question coming about that. We'll come back to him. Uh, um, but I just want to say quickly, though, it is very good that no matter what form he's in, Nanny sees him as a kitten. I know. Because I'm just like, ooh, is she going to do something? 
horrifying. And you're like, no, <laughs> thankfully not. Um, but yeah, there is a bit of a question there. Um, but yeah, they uh, they they're at the soiree before they go into the box where we meet the in inverted commas undercover <laughs> operatives. <laughs> Uh, Nobby and Detritus from The Watch, who are not very good at being undercover, um, which is great. Uh, I really enjoyed that sequence. They were very funny. Count the knobs and count detritus. Count detritus. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So good. Uh, just um, but, yeah. like, would Carrot have done any better, really? Like, aesthetically, yes, but he'd still got his watchman bearing. No, I, I don't think he would have done any better. And everyone it, knows him. I mean, everyone knows yeah, Nobby Endotritis as well, but yeah. they're kind of, I, I think they're sent along as a distraction oh, from totally. oh, 100%. The, real, the real force that's, that's there. That's true. Yeah, yeah, undercover. yeah. They go to the soiree, they hang around for a bit, they go into the box. Walter, we, we see him turn himself into the ghost. He yes. puts the mask on, straightens up, becomes this incredibly different sort of personality Opens the box, goes inside. It's kind of surprised to find Granny and Grebo there. Because mm. Nanny has um, taken his mum out of commission and she yes. hasn't been able to warn him. Mm. Yes. By feeding her something that is completely natural. It's made of apples. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> Mostly made of apples. I love that. So good. Oh, great recurring gag. <sighs> um, and, uh, yeah, he he's like, um, but um, he runs off. Uh, he escapes by climbing out of the box. Oh, yes. um, and, you know, making his way chase. through the thing. It's very operatic. I mm. love it. <laughs> it's a good chase. And it's very Batman as well, like the climbing over chandeliers and along the rope and Gribo chasing after him and, and the crowd all sees him and they're like, it's the opera ghost. Look, it's the opera ghost. Yeah. And he gets away and, and then, you know, Salzella turns up and is like, we've seen the ghost. Let's get after him um, with, a, with you know, the ghost's mask in his hand. Look, I found his mask. Let's get after him and gets a, whips up a mob and they all get pitchforks and... Uh, Which is what fires. you bring to the opera. Like. Yeah. I mean, they they probably have props, right? I mean, maybe there's a... They wouldn't be pointing. Is there a mob scene in an opera? Um, probably. But they run up to the roof and they kind of cornered on the roof, at which point Granny, who's like, I'm sure you did not murder anyone, Walter, takes the mask from him and puts it on Grebo and says, Grebo, run. And so the mob chases after Grebo. Because um, he's basically like, smoke me a kipper. Yeah. I'll, oh, I'll no. be back by morning. Oh, there'll be a, he's like, yes, I know there'll be a kipper in it. Uh, but the granny like borrows Nanny's broom, flies after him, makes sure he's all right, saves Grebo, who transforms into a cat at the last minute in order not to get murdered by this mob. But they think that they've like thrown him into the river and he's dead because they like can't find any other explanation for how he could have escaped. You'd be able to see if you'd thrown him in the river though because it'd take a long time for yeah, him Yeah, you to... would think so. Yeah. Um, but this is where, and finally, you know, all the plot comes out. This is where Granny's looking at the books, like you were saying earlier, with Agnes in the room. There's a great bit where they're like looking at the books, and someone's coming, yeah. and Agnes hides behind a curtain, and Granny makes herself invisible using witch star magic. So she's not literally invisible, but she just nobody can notice her. And there's some really nice descriptions of that. It's really somebody else's problem field kind of invisibility, um, and. The person who comes in while they're looking at the books is Andre. And they're all like, is he the murderous ghost? <laughs> but no, he's not. He's the Watcher's first secret policeman. <gasps> yeah. Investigating the Opera House murders. Big reveal. Yeah. And Love so it. they figure out who the real other ghost is. And it is. Dun, dun, dun. Salzella. <gasps> oh, Which, my God. I don't know, was this a surprise to anybody? By this point, no. Hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, earlier on, he seems so earnest about the opera. He seems to really love it that I think yeah. that's a bit of a red, not a red herring, but it's a, it's a bit of a red distraction. I think, he, a red I think he does love the opera, but he also loathes it. Yes. Or he hates it because they, they make that distinction yes. between hatred and loathing. And I got really confused because, like, Andre, like, because it's in Phantom of the Opera, like, Monsieur Andre and Mr. Verman yes. are the two things. I was like, well, he's going to be somehow, like, more involved in the opera, but, like, no. I was like, why do they give him one of the opera names? I think they just decided on giving him a French name. Because they also know. gave Angeli the name to, like, there's, there's a B-plot or a C-plot that we haven't touched on about Slug's long-lost mm. neighbour girl that... He is reunited with by the end of it because mm. um, Angeli is is the Christine character's real. I don't know. There's a whole thing, right? In Family Opera. Oh, in the book. Yeah, uh, I think in the musical. But I could be. Like, this, I think they're the same person. Is a. It's in a song. I can hear the song in my head, and I think it's, we'll, oh. we'll look that up later. I don't, I don't know that one, but yeah. it, yeah. but it's Family Opera name started throughout the whole thing. Is the oh yes, there are absolutely totally. yeah 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 yeah. Definitely a major influence. Um, and it sounds like he's, he's been embezzling money out of the opera. He's been cooking the books. But um, putting them in sacks under the opera, like, do better. Come just, on. Like, I know. It. Well, he's not going <laughs> to put it in a bank, is he? Like, that's he's home. Or does he live there? I think he might live there. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, he certainly has a bathroom in his office. Okay. And it's not so bad that he's mm. keeping his sacks of money in the opera. Because I'm like, it's yeah. terrible embezzling if you're just sitting on sacks of money and pla- just doing your normal job like embezzlement you're doing it wrong yeah <laughs> that kind of it now yeah. i wasn't sure how many murders there'd been because there's definitely pounder there's definitely the musical director mr undershaft yes yeah. dr undershaft. Mm. undershaft because they'd both uncovered the secret undershaft just happens to be there while he's smashing up some of the opera equipment mm. um when i looked thought back on it i'm like i'm not 100 percent sure what his motivation is there is he smashing up the musical equipment in order to buy new musical equipment as an excuse for stealing more money because he can cook that as an expense and say it costs more than it does. Does it also that- turn Will against the ghost? Oh, right. So, so that people hate him and that's part of his exit strategy. It's mm. like, we'll kill the ghost and then no one will ever suspect me because they think the ghost is dead so they'll never mm. have known that I was the ghost. Mm. Um, it's yeah. also, you know, it, it's distraction. It's... Uh... It's extra expense and it, it just keeps Bucket distracted. So yeah. he's not going to look into things quite as carefully as he otherwise might. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So Sazella runs off to try and escape. Uh, the final scene of the opera that they are performing is a masquerade ball. Uh, it's the name of the book. Although I just want to, why spell it with a K? Does it need to be? I mean, is this search engine optimization? Yeah. Okay. All right. Look, this is pre Google times, but is it is it that? Is it so that you can find the book really easily because it's going to be the only one spelled with a K? Because no. anything else called masquerade will be spelled sounds, the traditional way. I think it sounds too serious when it's spelled with a Q. Like it seems like maybe mm. it's going to be a serious book, whereas this, I think, it has the hint of satire. Perhaps. Mm. I guess that's true. Yeah. Okay. Mm. All right. All right. Because yeah, it seems a little literal. And the mask is such an important part of the story. You know, not just for the not just during the whole opera ghost bit, but during this sort of the, the finale, which we're up to now. Um, Cause he's gone onto stage to hide in the crowd because everybody's wearing masks. So you don't know which one he is. Um, and granny and nanny sneak on granny in like a, a tutu. Oh God, that's <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I could just see that happening in the, yeah. my mind's eye. Uh, and I'm like, that is so hilarious. She's so wonderful. And she's loving it as well. And I'm like, yes, I want more of this. Um, and they're trying to figure out who it was. I, I, I felt that it didn't need to go on quite as long as it did because it seemed pretty clear who it was going to be. 
Um, but they've got, and then they've got that long sequence where they're trying to figure out who it is. And then Mr. Bucket turns around and realizes that um, Henry Slug slash Enrico Basilica is talking to him. And he's like, but that's, you're supposed to but be in the cockerel costume out there. Yes. It, what, it, I mean, there's probably more than one, but is mm. there a big opera that ends with a big masquerade scene? Everybody's in masks there, look, look, there could well be. There, there are plenty of operas that have masquerades. Mm. Um, there's Un Balo in Mascara, of course, which is a masked ball. Right. Um, <laughs> which is all about Clearly. that. Yeah. Um, one of the most famous ones, though, which is kind of referenced, is the operetta Die Fledermaus, where they confuse the men. So people confuse their spouses for someone else because they're wearing quite a small mask or right. they might be wearing someone else's clothes. And so a ridiculous disguise that would never This would wear. never happen to Verence and Magret, though. Because she knows what he looks like with a moustache oh, or a monocle. Yes. Or indeed wearing a silly costume. Correct. So but, they're proofed against that. Oh, that's nice. But, but yeah, look, Flatermouth is probably the most famous one where that all happens. Why, how would you not recognise your spouse who presumably you've slept with yeah. before just because they're wearing different clothes? It's like... That's is not it in how the dark? it's like. No. I mean, even then. <laughs> well, even it's, then. like in Sailor Moon, it's very obvious that Tuxedo Mask is Damien, the one guy in the show. <laughs> but like, I don't know any other men, right? But, but yeah, he's wearing a suit and he's got a tiny little ribbon across his eyes, so he's Tuxedo Mask. Yep, exactly. Look, it's just he's literally called Tuxedo Mask as well. Like Superman all over again. That's fantastic. Yeah, he isn't even wearing a mask. He's just no, wearing spandex. He takes his mask off. Um, but anyway, but, there's a, the big battle scene. Like they finally figure out who the guy is. Yeah, and Salzella is has taken the big cockerel costume. He's padded himself up so he's the same size as Enrico Basilica. But he gets the head taken off. They realize who he is, and yeah, he's like, gonna, "I'm gonna kill people. You can't catch me." I know. Oh, Super villain. It's great. It's so dramatic, and it's and this is all happening in front of the audience. We should say. Because they almost shut the opera down halfway through because the opera ghost sort of disrupts everything and they're like, what's happening? And they're like, the show must go on. We've got to sing. We've got to do the end of the show. And he has this big rant about how much he hates the opera and how awful it is, which is kind of great. So good. But he doesn't do that straight away. First of all, he tries to take a hostage. He's going to kill Walter, who doesn't have his mask anymore. It's been broken. And then they have all these strong women empower this this guy by giving him his individual mask of invisible, invisible mask, mask so that on. he can save the day and all of that. And I would be very on board with that if it weren't for what happens afterwards. It's true. Mm. But, but they yeah. do. They they kind of integrate his two parts of his personality because Nanny has been down into his secret lair and discovered that he's got a little mini organ down there. He's super talented. A, a keyboard, I should say. And he's been what composing I mean a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, which is not quite opera, uh, but... <laughs> Seems pretty good. Um, Turns out Walter is actually Andrew Lloyd Webber. Mm-hmm. Which might explain why he's such a jerk. No, I don't know. I don't know if I need to say that. I'm is sure. Is that Andrew why Lloyd he Webber's loves Christine fine. so much? Because um, Andrew Lloyd Webber was married to Christine Brightman, wasn't he? No, was Sarah Brightman. Sarah Brightman, sorry. I, I merged them together like some kind of opera ghost. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, I have nothing to back I, that up. My, and my, my love for what Pratchett did with, with opera through the whole book ended as soon as he brought out all of these musicals oh, no. in there and started basically saying, oh, you know, you should see these. They're, they're like, actually good. It's like opera, you know? but good. It's like yes. opera, but good. And I'm like, Pretty harsh. they're both good, no. but different. I got the impression it's like, it's like opera, but it'll make lots of money. And I was like, mm. well, look, you know, to be fair, opera is great. But if you put on opera, you get an audience. And if you put on 
a Broadway style musical, you get a much bigger audience. Like it is a, it is a thing for the modern age. And I think it's one of the things where this is that transitional period in the middle of the disc world where we're transitioning away from those epic plots about the end of the world and more to a real world thing. But also we're progressing the world of the disc world into the future. Like it's, it's moving towards something closer to us than to magical medieval Europe, like a Dungeons and Dragons style fantasy setting. And this is one of those moments where opera is seen as the thing from the past, which is, you know, it's harsh. People do still write new operas and it's still performed regularly, right? But then he's saying we're now moving into what we would think of as contemporary musical theatre and that's like a shift in the way people think about music and theatre in the world of the disc. Mm. It comes down to, I think it's, it's alluded to earlier, they're talking to Bucket and he says, how do you ever make any money? And he says, I think it's Altsela says to him, you seem to be under a misapprehension. Money is what you put in and opera is what you get out. Yeah. You know, it's it's not this doesn't make money. Mm. You know, you, you and yes, opera tickets are expensive, absolutely. Yeah, well making um, opera is expensive. But making opera is even more expensive. It's like big main stage theatre. It costs money because it's expensive. I it wish does. someone else had said the line though, because I know. Because him saying it is because he's literally embezzling the profits, so it undercuts the sentiment which I think is stronger. <laughs> but it is true. At the same time, it's it's certainly it's why he gets away true. with it for so long. Yeah, As because been... it's true. I think it would have had more of a punch if it was said by someone who wasn't also yes. stealing from it. Mm. it. Wasn't actually a dick. Yeah, if it was Mister Undershaft who had said that, I think not that it's a mate. It's like a real nitpicky thing. But if I was like the editor of the book, yeah, I would have probably been like, can we can we shift that yeah. line? Although, do you think do you think he was doing it under the previous owner as well? Like yeah. it's not clear how long he's been doing it. Like clearly for quite some time, but it's not clear. Quite Definitely, how you couldn't long. have sacks oh. of money like that big like that quickly. Yeah. Other questions, sort of about doing things previously, is Christine the first one that the Opera Ghost has trained? I don't think so. Maybe not, but I think it, they certainly react to his demand that she plays a role as if it's a thing that hasn't happened before. Mm. So it's like he's stepping it up. He's like mm. taking it to the next level. He's mm. like, I'm not just going to train up someone who I like in the thing. I'm like, I want to make this person the star who is not currently capable of being the star mm. and I want it to happen tomorrow. Like that seems like it's an escalation if nothing else. Yeah, and maybe it's an extension of how he himself feels because he, as Walter, is very overlooked and not allowed to excel. So perhaps he's finding an analog that he can help achieve the things that he kind of wants for himself. Like he doesn't want to sing, but he wants to succeed. But... As he is, he can't see a way to do that, so he chooses someone else to channel that through. Mm. Perhaps like that could be drawing a long bow, but it kind of the sentiment feels like it's there for me. I think that he's just someone who is very passionate about the opera and and wants to see it succeed and wants to see it flourish. And I don't think my my feeling is that the character of Walter doesn't feel about opera the way. Terry Pratchett as the author feels about opera, which is that it's a strange and foreign thing and that musicals are more accessible, etc. Um, I actually I think Walter writes musicals because he can see the joy and beauty in that art form. I mean, and it, it is a wonderful art form in and of itself, but mm. it's not the same. Yeah. Uh, and I think that like in later books, there are still operas being performed at the Opera House as oh, well as, you know, Walter's absolutely. new stuff. So, yeah, it's not like it totally gets left behind. 
Mm. But look, speaking of the opera, though, the magic of the opera has well and truly taken hold. Mm. Uh, and we have skipped over it one bit because before they sort of fix up Walter and integrate his personalities and make him into basically <laughs> super opera man, um, <laughs> they do tuxedo, tuxedo mask, mask, basically. Yeah. <laughs> There's that great bit where Granny strides out on the stage and she has not disguised herself. She's, she's got put her witchy clothes back on. And uh, actually, no, I think she's still dressed up fancy, but Good, she's clearly a witch. Um, and, but they're still black. Like It's like fancy witch clothes. I hope she keeps them. I can't remember if she, she ever wears them again. She probably puts her hat on because that's mm. what she does when she wants to be serious. I think that's true. Uh, it's her mask. I think that actually does happen. I think she puts her hat on. And he's like, yeah, well, I hear witches aren't immune to iron. And yeah. he tries to like stab her and she catches his sword in her hand and it doesn't cut her. And he's like, the iron, witches can't do magic on iron. And you're like, yeah. And, I, and it, my immediate thought was Dungeons and Dragons player. Yeah, but you could do magic on your own hand. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not rocket science, like, you know, flesh to stone or bark skin or something. Um, sorry, that's a very specific What's her, reference. What, what do you think her armor class is? Oh, well. What's look, the highest one there is? Normally like maybe 12, but in that moment, it's probably 20. It's a great moment. But then they empower Walter. He gets up. He fights Salzella, but he's clearly kind of going to lose because he can only do stage fighting, which is how he beat the thieves earlier, is he's sort of doing all these flashy flourishes and he's got very good footwork and he's very athletic and it looks great and it confuses a bunch of thieves who don't really know how to fight. But Salzella does know how to fight properly and you can't beat someone who's an actual swordsman with, you know, stage fighting techniques. But he does. He, like, stabs him, and, but but he's not actually even really stabbed. He's just got, like, the sword yeah. under his arm. <laughs> but he still dies because the opera magic makes it real. And I just, I thought that, that was, was so great. good. It is good. Um, and that's when he does his big speech about how much he hates the opera because he can't yeah. die straight away. He's got to do that sort of, I'm dying. So I'm luckily. dying. <laughs> but I'm going to talk for 20 minutes before I die. And that's all accurate, actually. I mean, it's not, it's not universally accurate that deaths take a long time. On the opera stage, but... But it's, uh, it's, it is a thing that happens. It is definitely a thing. It mm. is definitely a thing. But then, rather annoyingly, Walter and Andre come on stage and they just pay attention to Christine, who has fainted for mm. no good reason, and they both seem to be really into her. And I was just like, no. <laughs> Why? I mean, one of you, that would be fine. Then I could be like, okay, so I like the other one better. It's like a Peter and Gail situation. Yeah. And, and I could have picked one, but they're both into her, the, the idiot person who's like a jerk to Agnes. And I'm like, no. Yeah. And they just, and like Walter, in this brave new era of the opera, decides that he's still going to go with Christine, like Ugh. rather than the talented one. So gross. I was like, you went through all this character development to be a real shit still. Like, yeah. it, I found it really disappointing. And I'm not saying it's bad writing because, like, I think. It's realistic in some ways. Like, it's just, I found it as a person annoying. I don't think necessarily he should have written it any different way. No, but I think this is where, you know, what we were talking about earlier with the the fat shaming stuff comes back to for me was that, you know, nobody gets a comeuppance for having that opinion, Mm. right? They win and Agnes is the one who has to leave the opera and go back to the life that is fated for her that she says she doesn't want. And certainly by the end of this book, she still doesn't want it. And it feels... Like, like I know it's meant to feel to us like she's accepting her destiny and this is really what she's meant to do. But for me reading it, I was just like, no, you don't have to do this. If this isn't what you want, don't do it. Do something else. I felt quite sad for her. Mm. Even though I think, you know, clearly she has got the power and the attitude to be a fantastic witch. 
I'm like, but I don't want you to feel, I don't want you to be doing it for these reasons, which is that you don't feel like you can do anything else. But you got a high TER, so you got to do the the course that has a high TER yeah. ranking, not the one you want to do. Well, yeah. but she she says, I think, throughout that she can feel a future trying to land on her. And that's such a telling comment. It's surprisingly difficult in life to shift the course that you are on once you start down it. Um, so I understand what they're talking about with mm. that, you know, having tried to shift course several times myself. And it's it's really difficult. There's a lot of inertia it's almost like the universe doesn't want you to change direction once you've started down a particular path. And poor Agnes just keeps getting pushed back yeah, all the time into that path that, that she hasn't chosen. And I think that's what the real problem for her is. I haven't, you know, her feeling is I haven't chosen this. It's chosen me and I, I want to choose. And, and I think she does choose in the finish, but she almost gets, it's still almost forced and it's by default. Mm. Like she chooses it because she feels like I tried something else, I didn't, it didn't work out for me. Mm. And I... Mm. Uh, just that, that exchange between Agnes and Walter at the end just always breaks my heart where she says, but it was me that you taught to him. And he says, then you were very good. And I suspect she will never be quite that good, even with many months of my tuition. But Perdita, have you ever heard of the words star quality? Mm. And she says... Is it the same as talent? And he says it is rarer. And I just want to smack him <laughs> because that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> so not true. Yeah. So everyone out there who has some talent, don't give up on your dream. Don't give up on your dream. If you want to do it, go and do it. It, don't, don't, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. The only reason I have got to sing any opera at all is because I'm a stubborn bitch. <laughs> yep. Well, I can, you know, I can identify with And that. I just keep coming back at it and back and back and back. And I got my dream, which was to sing in La Traviata. And you've got to not believe the Walters of this world because they're jerks. Yeah. Just because I say it with confidence doesn't yeah. mean it's true. Yeah. It's interesting to me, though, also, because this is one of the instances where it being a fictional world muddies the waters a little bit. Because in our world... Every other person in the, for many decades now has wanted to be some kind of celebrity. And a lot of that is, you know, wanting to be on TV or film or these days, you know, a YouTube star or whatever it is. Whereas we're talking about a time where in equivalent sort of history terms, celebrity is not a thing. Like there is no television. There is no mass media. And Morpork doesn't even have a newspaper at this stage. So there's no, there's not a real culture of celebrity. And so perhaps there aren't. And, and look, I'm, I really, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I totally agree with you in terms of interpreting this in the real world. But I think in the fiction of the story, there aren't that many people who want to be famous. Like there are people who want to be ballerinas and there are people who want to be singing in the opera, but they're a rare breed of person. It's mm-hmm. not everyone wants to do that because everyone wants to be famous. So maybe it's a little more true in the world of Ankh-Morpork Pork in the book than it is in real life. I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm giving Terry too much credit for that. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly possible. It's it's just that we have our surface thoughts about things, and we often don't go beyond that. So that that's why, as we were talking about earlier, representation is something that can really be very important mm. because we rarely go beyond the surface. Well, I mean, we we're at the end. We, we just to finish off the storyline. Oh, yeah. Nanny shows Walter's musicals to Bucket. It's like I think these could make money. And they're like, oh, well, we'll make them then. Great. Um, Basilica, like, tells the audience that he's Henry Slug. I'm going to sing as Henry Slug and I'm going to eat as much beer and 
buys as I can. Um, uh, but the show's not over because Nanny makes her little comments. It's like, no, go on, do the thing, go on. Do... And Agnes sings and the opera is over. And they don't, they never say the line, but we all know what's going on there. Mm. And it's just one last fat joke before the book is over. You're like, oh, do we really need that? But at least... Um... Henry Slug is reunited with his long lost love and oh, apparently his right. son. That was so good. His son who like he's described so well with that like five minutes to like being more efficient or something and he'd he'd do a timer if he was reading that book. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. That was great. I love that because they turn up and they're like these fun little sort of side characters and I was then, like, Oh, why are they here? Just to show us what the chandelier is. But. And then no, there's like a there's a whole thing where it's linked back to his sad story of his upbringing. It was just oh yeah, it was really lovely. I enjoyed that a lot. You used to have to put your name down to get a gutter for years. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very four Yorkshiremen, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was great. It is nice to have um, little NPCs that are just kind of actually important to things instead of just being throwaway characters. It felt like with every single character in this story that they actually had a an importance beyond simply illustrating something for the plot, mm. which was nice. Yeah. I agree. And it was just nice that he had this like ready-made family after all all this time being forced to pretend to be someone else in order to pursue his dream and it's actually going to all fall into place for him now and that's actually nice. Yeah. Cuz he seemed like a genuinely nice character. Mm. You I think I think that softens the kind of crap ending that Agnes gets because at least somebody gets a nice ending who isn't a jerk. Yeah. That helped. It's also yeah. the fact that fat men don't get punished as much as fat men yep. do. Well, yeah, that is that is very much true to life, unfortunately. Yes. But, you know, there's still a little bit of a, a ending. Um, yeah. Granny and Nanny head home on the coach. Um, <laughs> Agnes, like, very pointedly does not go on the coach with them and walks home. Says, Have you got any ailments that need curing? No, I've got no ailments. How many do you want? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then there's that great bit where Granny pays the price for her magic on the stage. I love that bit. She's, at the time, she's like, I ain't got time to bleed, which isn't yeah. what she says, but it's like it's the kind of it's sentiment yeah. that she gives. And then later on she goes, I reckon I got time now. And she sits down and prepares like the boiled water and some rags and stuff. It's pretty great. Yeah. Um, and then Agnes turns up while she's digging a new hole for her privy and, is, uh, and does not become an apprentice, but does agree to go and live in Magrat's old cottage. Mm. Yeah. Which is the end of the book. It's um, it was quite a ride. I I loved it. Yeah, it's just so well put together. That it has all these things that I love, like mm. you know, like and all these characters I love, and also it's just a murder mystery. Just a good old fashioned murder mystery. Yeah, really down to earth. It's like it's like when I watch a Doctor Who episode that's not about the end of the world or the end of the universe. It's just about these people are threatened by this thing, and we've got to save these people. I'm like, I care. This is great. I love this. It's like, like Miss Fisher. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. This could be my favorite that we've reread so far. It's certainly up there. Yeah. Uh, before we get on to some questions, because we've got loads of them, does anyone want to read out some favourite bits? I've picked out a few. A lovely little bit from early on when they're doing, in the first performance that's in the book. It says, out in front, the orchestra was already tuning up. The chorus was filing on to be a busy marketplace in which various jugglers, gypsies, sword swallowers and gaily dressed yokels would be entirely unsurprised at an apparently drunken baritone strolling on to sing an enormous amount of plot at a passing tenor. <laughs> that is literally what happens. <laughs> it is so accurate. It's funny. I've got them um, after they're all chasing Grebo, who I'd like to point out, I had been picturing as orange. I know they've said he's grey before, but I just sort of kept in my mind making him orange uh -huh. in between books. Yeah. This is after the mob gets him, and so there's this great line. 
And since the IQ of a mob is the IQ of its most stupid member divided by the number of mobsters, it was never very clear to anyone what had happened. I just love that, that about so mob good. mentality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just a little throwaway, but it's so good. Because it's like, there's the shade, and then the shade gets divided by the amount of shade, and it's just so good. Yeah, yeah. Early on, Granny's helping somebody with their back, and she's using some of her placebo effects of medical knowledge, and she's describing the thing that she's giving to the guy. This is a mixture of rare herbs and such like, yeah. <laughs> including sucrose and aqua. Yes, <laughs> so I love that. water and sugar, sugar water. It's so good, it's so good. Literally. Uh, later on, death like has a little sort of return to that. I think the other part that I quite liked is the swan song bit oh. early on, where he's trying to get the swan to sing, <laughs> and uh, and he tricks it into singing. I love it. That was great. <laughs> death is, as always, fantastic in this book. My favourite part of the whole book, though. If I may, yes, is uh, the dedication. It says, My thanks to the people who showed me that opera was stranger than I could imagine. I can best repay their kindness by not mentioning their names here. <laughs> <laughs> and I totally understand what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. I really loved, so that's an opera house, is it? Said Granny. Looks like someone built a great big box and glued the architecture on afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> And snow the buildings that she's talking about. Which is kind of the opposite of the Sydney Opera House, which yes. is like, let's make the most beautiful building we can think of. And also we'll put opera in it. Okay. Great. I watched um Evita there, so I watched an Andrew Lloyd Webber <laughs> musical in it. My favorite joke in the whole book is when um they're trying to get on the coach to Ankh-Morpork at the start of the book. <laughs> and the driver says, He says, Listen, lady, even I was stopping here, the tickets are forty damn dollars each. Oh. Why have you got broomsticks? shouted the driver. Are you witches? Yes. Have you got any special load terms for witches? Yeah. How about meddling interfering old baggages? <laughs> and I just thought that was such a good gag. Like, that was it's, good. Because it's kind of a weird turn of phrase, but then it so pays off. Uh, it and does. then, you know, like the guy who's listening, because we're listening from the perspective of one of the passengers, doesn't hear a part of the conversation and then the witches get on and you're never quite sure what they say to him, but it's just, oh, so good. But I love that. This is where we meet Mr. Morecambe, who uh, turns out to be Henry Slug's long lost son. He'd bought a book about the opera and read it carefully because he'd heard that it was absolutely unheard of to go to an opera without knowing what it was about. And the chance of finding out why you were actually watching it was remote. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that's so good. Like, I, it's, oh, there was one other thing I did want to read because I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. Um, so I did, just, I did just want to pay tribute to the thing that Nobby says. What do you think then? You think he turned into a bat and flew away? Ha, huh, I do not think that because it is in... Consistent with modern policing, said Detritus. Well, I think, said Nobby, that when you've ruled out the impossible, what is left, however improbable, ain't worth hanging around on a cold night wondering about when you could be getting on the outside of a big drink. <laughs> I'm like, that is very definitely how Nobby approaches policing. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, so I love that. There's so many other good bits I could quote, though, but I won't, I won't quote them all. The whole book is, like, mostly... It's just one long good bit. It's, it's Yeah, just great gags, great passages, great descriptions like you were saying earlier, Liz. It's yeah. just a really nice polished piece of writing. Mm, yeah. He just seems so comfortable now with the world and the characters that he just manipulates it all with, with such ease. It's really lovely to read. And it's probably worth pointing out this is this is still during the period when Pratchett was very prolific. Like he published three different Discworld books this year that this came out in 1994. This is after Soul Music and Interesting Times and then Masquerade. Now, Interesting Times, you know, we, we did that recently and we had our issues with it, but it's still pretty well written. 
but soul music is also mm. a fantastic piece of work and also about music. So interestingly, you know, that his two books most about music came out the same year. Yeah. But look, we should get to some questions because we've got so many and we do want to try and answer them. We won't get through them all. So let's, uh, let's get straight into them. Liz, what's, what's the first one? So we had a really great comment from Grace on Instagram about Agnes and the issues that we've, we've touched on or discussed at length in this today. So we just wanted to thank Grace for her comment, which was very insightful. Yeah, thanks, Grace. Here's a question from Australian Discworldcon. So this may have already been covered, um, but what Pratchett books would make a great stage musical apart from Masquerade? The obvious ones seem to be Soul Music and Nightwatch due to the Les Mis parallels, but would any others be the next Wicked? Oh, that's a good question. Going postal. I was going to say going postal. That's why I cut in front. (laughs) Ah, Because it's just so good and dramatic and it's got like, it's just, I don't know, I can just see them singing a song about the clacks, you know, whilst on on a clacks tower that's part of the set. The sad solo about stamps and pins, like the the switch from oh, pins to stamps. Oh my god! That yeah. would just be a bit with the spotlight on Stanley, as it's like the like not memory sort of like it's just but yeah, I think that would be a great one. And the costumes. Oh, it would be great. Yeah, imagine the the musical theater version of the postman's outfit. Oh my god, the gold suit with the winged hat. Like that oh. already is the musical theatre version is the musical of it. Theater version, yeah. Oh, so I find good. that all rather terrifying, to be honest. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, what do you think, with those? Do you think there's a good Discord um, one? I would love to see Guards Guards mm. as a mm. as an inner music theatre version, mostly because I'm desperate to know how artistic directors would cope with the dragon issue. Uh, as in having to get a dragon on stage. Yeah. Lighting? Shadows? It's difficult. Big puppet, probably. It's difficult. I mean, they do no, have the dragon in Shrek, the musical. But could it be implied, yes. like an implied dragon? Oh, that'd be pretty good. Well, there are so many stories about dragons. And there's a dragon in opera, believe it or not. There's a dragon in the ring cycle. And it's a mm. constant problem how to represent this dragon. Use so, the tripod solution and do that all in shadow puppetry. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking as well. Like, you just, it could be very cool. Yeah, but, that's what but the, dragon, the, the dragon features very prominently in Guards Guards, gets on stage and has a lot of dialogue and all of this other stuff. So I, I just I would love to see how they solve that. But I just think it could be a really great could you could have this like whole scene where the town turns around at, at, at the end of Act One is like a dragon's our king now and we're gonna just deal with it you know you yeah. have this big crowd scene at, at the i could just see it at the end yeah. of that one and then act two is how we freed ourselves from the dragon yeah so yeah i think that would be quite fun i could crossbow would be a really cool thing in there mm. yeah mm. i'm gonna say also i think dodger would make a great musical yes but yeah. it is also i mean it would it's be a comedy version of oliver but it would be and not that comedic actually because it's quite yeah. dark in parts but but i think you could make a great musical out of it for sure yeah, 100% i think yeah. the truth would make a great musical because mm. it's about newspapers and stuff yeah i think that could be quite fun really good set potential yeah actually i could kind of see the bromeliad being a great musical Oh, yeah, because you could do the sets really cool because you make them look small. Yeah, so you just have these giant props everywhere and you just make all the actors play, you know, because you would never, because they don't do, until the third one, they don't have any significant interaction with humans that you couldn't sort of hand wave away because they never talk to them. And even in the last one, I think you could you could do it. Like we'd, you just need like a puppet giant hand or something. Mm. Um, I think that would be great. 
Yeah. Now, oh, now I want to see that. <laughs> all of them should be made into musicals. Just make all of them into Someone as many things as possible. Yeah. We need, we need new versions it, of composers. it. Composers. I mean, because we'll run out of books at some point. Then what are we going to do? Well, finish the podcast. But, you know, um, okay. All right, let's move on. Uh, another question. All right. This one's from Natalie Haig. Um, I love Masquerade mainly because I love Phantom of the Opera. Same here. Um, plus Agnes slash Perdita of the big hair and many voices. But it's also fun to ride along on Nanny and Granny's adventure in publishing. If you could try a recipe from Joy of Snacks, which one would it be? Oh, God. And I'm going to have to say, like, are we being forced to try something from the Joy of Snacks? Because I don't think I would willingly. <laughs> not, not at all. Okay. I can tell you what I wouldn't try, which mm. is the banana nana soup surprise, <laughs> because I don't like cooked bananas. And it's a great callback to her previous joke of like she knew how to start saying banana, but she didn't know how to stop. stop. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I reckon I'm game. I'll try any of them. <laughs> I'll, I'll, wow. I'll do it. You heard it here first. Yeah. I mean, look, carrot and oyster pie. I mean, well, one of my problems is I'm I'm vegetarian, so a lot of the stuff in the book is not edible for me. Not the banana, na 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 na. But yeah, maybe I could eat that. So maybe I would go with that. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually quite intrigued to try the chocolate delight with special secret sauce mm. in spite of knowing what the possible side effects are. I'm just intrigued. <laughs> I, I just And they list out some spices but they don't list everything in, in, in masquerade that is. Mm. So I'm actually quite interested to know what else is supposed to be in that. Well, look, maybe we might have to table this question because we will be covering at some point in some way Nanny Og's cookbook, which you can actually cook the recipes in. So maybe we'll revisit this question and when we do literally that. decide which ones we mm. would have. Yeah. All right. So this one's from Steve Lee on Twitter. Given that this one's a riff on the other, what was the greater influence on Masquerade, the Gaston LaRue novel or the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical? Definitely Andrew Lloyd Webber. 100%. Because, and the tie-ins, as we, we talked about it earlier, but the, the, there's so much that ties it to the Andrew Lloyd Webber from what the characterization of Walter Plinge, which is very clearly a callback to Frank Spencer, who was played by Michael Crawford, who was the first Phantom of the Opera, right through how the story progresses uh, and, and the fact that they tie in things that are, a lot of things that are essentially Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals at the end that Walter has been writing. So it's, I'd say it's much more clearly that. I mean, there's some gothic elements that are the, the novel, but I think the biggest, biggest callback there is to Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera. I've got nothing to add. That was just very, very all-encompassing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, so this one's from Stephanie Poon. What were your predictions for the identity of the Phantom when you first started to read this book? Also, what recipes do you know that would be worthy of Nanny Og's book? Oh. So we, we've kind of touched on a bit of that. Like we, we talked about our speculation on who it was going to be. So recipes that you think would be worthy of Nanny Og? I don't know. Like I, I haven't really liked things with eggplant in, and I feel like there's some <laughs> jokes there that are emoji-based that now could like some sort of peach and eggplant souffle. Yeah. Sounds terrible yeah it does sound terrible but <laughs> but you know yeah so i think um if you've seen call me by my name call me by your name um, i forget which one it is but um there's something that happens with a peach in that that i think that nanny would be quite on board with including in her book so mm. yeah talking discworld specific things i don't think you guys have done it yet the last continent no, no not yet but no. there is a recipe in that 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 i think nanny og would approve of the peach butt <laughs> okay. Well, it's, it actually, it actually, yeah, it gets uh, it gets called the peach Nelly, but mm. the the alternative would have been to call it the peach butt. So, yeah, right. there's a whole story behind that, also associated with opera. 
you'll just have to read the book. Oh, yeah. Mm, yep. Okay. <laughs> I know where that's going. Yeah. Um, here's a question from Sven Ockerman. What is your favorite caliber of champagne against angry opera guests and which one to drink? I think it's just fun to ask that question because yeah. I'm <laughs> fully prepared to go on record and I apologize to my mother about this because she will be disappointed in me, but I do not know enough about champagne or Australian white sparkling wine uh, to be able to answer this question. I have to admit, in my experience, champagne has tended to decrease the anger levels of opera guests, and I've never actually seen properly angry opera guests. They might get a bit drunk and sloppy in terms of, you know, just talking about what they did or didn't like about a performance, but they don't tend to be that angry. But I I guess I I don't actually drink myself anymore. But when I did, I would have gone for something like a um, Verve Clicquot Mm. or... Um, possibly it depends on, you know, how, how much I wanted to spend. Wait, hang on. I've got this. It, if it's a caliber of champagne, <laughs> surely you should use a Magnum because that's the most powerful <laughs> bottle of champagne in the world. It'll blow your head clean off. Well, and <laughs> sorry, go home. <laughs> I think a pink mullet would be a funny one. Uh, no, that's only an effective one. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Pink. Why pink? I think it's just... The pink ones are, do not scream violence to me, so it's just visually more funny. Yeah. Because they wouldn't see it coming. You don't expect to be hit in the head with a bottle of champagne. You don't expect to be hit in the head with a bottle of pink champagne. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Should I be wearing a helmet? <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm very afraid. Let's get on to the next question. <laughs> oh, dear. This one is from Murphy Peoples. Can we please talk about the thirst trap that is human Grebo? Yes, we can. Yes, let's talk about okay. human Look, I mean, Grebo. he is, I mean, you don't get any uh, illustrations of him at this stage, but I, I don't know if you've seen the illustrations of him, and I'm sure there are many fan ones that I have not seen, but he is basically like sex poured into a very tight-fitting <laughs> leather outfit. It's just a little bit. He's, a, he's, he's I just have no problem boy. with that, but, but like it's 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 all entirely his own choice. He's being totally true to himself mm. in in doing that. And what always amuses me is it's it's sort of weird. It's like as a cat, he's nothing much to look at. He's actually described as being quite ugly and and beaten up, like a like a fist with fur. I think is one of the descriptions. Is it because cats are relatively adaptable though? Though, like, is it like his reflex to? fit in like to have the same things that he can do as a cat as much as possible by finding the human form that will allow him the same effects yeah well because there's that great bit in the book where he's chasing the opera ghost and he like leaps for the chandelier and the rope and everyone thinks he's not going to make it and then somehow he twists his spine around in a way that doesn't seem natural and he <laughs> lands on it perfectly and you're like that's what cats do yeah yes that is what um and yeah I, maybe i think there's something in that I mean, also, he's just like, he's, when I visualize it, he's like, he's like the evil twin character on any, like, you know, really sourced up soap opera. <laughs> you know, it comes out with the eye patch and the beard, and you're like, he also. He, he, eye patch would switch sides from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> Cause we, but we cast him. Who was it? He was like that character from Xena that we. Oh, yeah, thought. Ares. Yeah, Ares, yeah. yeah. The guy from The Mummy, like the the one who's the head of the Magi. Oh, yeah. He's great. He's come back in a lot of things, like as a silver fox now. Like he uh-huh. was in an episode of Younger, which is the worst TV show, and I've watched all of it. Actually, this, here's, here's a question for you, though. Grebo turns into a human being. Grebo's quite old by cat standards, mm. but he turns into like a man in, the, in his prime. 
Is mm. that because that's how Gribo thinks of himself or is that because Gribo is actually not as Ooh. old as maybe we think he is actually in his prime? Good question. Mm. I, no, I don't. I think Gribo is a, an older cat. I never got the impression that he's an elderly cat. Okay. Mm. He might be Silver cat. Fox. Well, but cats, old aging cats doesn't seem to last very long. It doesn't. Prime of life for a cat really these days is around age six to seven. Right. You know. He's clearly old than that. Nanny's had him for a lot longer than that. Yeah. Maybe he's just magically youthful. And I don't think necessarily if you're going to transmogrify into a different creature, you're going to be the same age as your original form because it's still like you're looking like something else. Mm, Like it's like taking polyjuice potion in a way, except you have even more control over what the end result is. So I don't think it's like Grebo as a human. It's Grebo in a human form. Yeah, okay. If that... Like, but it could he could have looked entirely different. I think maybe if he chose or the witches chose or it's not just his human counterpart. Yeah, yeah but also, you, you know, you see there's a scene where they're trying to get him to fit the clothes so clearly they can have some control over his appearance. Mm. Hmm. Who would you cast as Grebo now? I know you've had this discussion before, but... Well, well, unfortunately, the guy who played Ares is no longer with us, so we couldn't cast him anyway. Mm. And the other guy's now a Silver Fox, so, like, everyone's a bit older. I so. could kind of see um, the guy who was Carl Drogo in Game of Thrones. Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa. Oh. I can kind of see him doing it. Because he's got... Like, now you've seen him as Aquaman. He's also... He does the, like, the big beard thing. Yeah. In there. And I could kind of... Like, I think if you made him look the part, like, gave him the eye patch and the pointy little beard and put him in the thing, he would... He would totally do it. I would watch that. That would be awesome. Mm. Quick, let's get the movie started. <laughs> yeah, watch yeah. him drink a large glass of milk and jump on a chandelier. What about the actor who plays Billy in Stranger Things if he had different hair? Because Ooh. he's got that energy of yes. like because there's in, I don't know if you've seen season three. There's just in the first episode. I don't think this is a spoiler. He's a he's a lifeguard. Yeah, and he walks past all of the the mums. <laughs> Who are there specifically for shift change to Just watch to him. him. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. kind of the energy I got from human form Grebo. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. He's maybe a little on the young side, might have to get a bit older first, but I reckon and with the he'd, different he'd hair, need, like he'd need and no offense to him, but he would need some lifts because Grebo is a lot taller. Mm. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I could energy see that. wise, I think. He's he's hot, but he's also clearly up to no good. <laughs> yeah. He's he's down to break some ethics. Yeah. yeah. His moral compass is has been touched against a magnet at some point. Is that the appeal of Grippo? Yeah. He's well, dangerous. He has no moral compass. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, why is that so attractive? Um, I wish I knew. Mm. I wish yeah. I knew. All right. Okay. I think we've <laughs> All right, exhausted that question. <laughs> we've, got a, we've, got a, we've got a few more left. Let's, so, let's, yes, we can let's talk about the thirst trap. Um, yeah, we did. <laughs> so it's one from a chew and sneezed. Okay. A sing song is the third best thing to do on a long, dark evening in the ramp tops. The first may be obvious, but what's the second? Oh, now we got a really good answer to this from Twitter. Paul said that the second best thing is probably drinking some kind of fruit beverage, maybe made from apples, (laughs) asterisk, well, mostly apples, (laughs) which is a perfect answer, a perfect answer. I I don't think I can improve on that. I actually wonder, though, if for ram toppers, which is a word that you should never say out of context. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh. If maybe the the thing that we're assuming is the, the the first best thing to do is actually the second best thing to do and that there's not some rural related activity that, that they think is the best thing to do, like 
practicing Morris dancing or something like that. <laughs> well, you know what? It's something we haven't mentioned is is the question that Granny asks everybody in the book, which oh. is mm. like, if your house was on fire, what's the first thing you'd take out of it? And Walter mm. gives the fantastic, you know, very literal but fantastic answer: mm. take the fire out. Mm. Uh, I wonder if it's build a fire. Like it's a long mm. dark night in the rent. Build a fire, guys. Mm. Yeah, that'd be my first. <laughs> Get around the do. fire. Yeah. Shelter. Just yeah. shelter in general. Just yeah. don't die. Like, stay alive. All right. This one's from Neil Weber via Twitter. Um, so is this book peak weatherwax? She's transcended mere psychology in the latter stages. She's gone beyond the epic events of lords and ladies, and she's also revealed as a great beauty with perfect feet and skin. It does throw back to Weird Sisters for sure, but I can't think of a later book where she holds rain like she does in this. She's the most all-powerful figure I can think of of anyone in any book, although veterinary. So, yeah. Is, this, is she at her peak? It's difficult for me because I haven't read Kappa Yagulam for a long time, so I don't remember what she's like in that. And I also haven't read the Tiffany Aching books where she comes back later on, so I don't know if she's more powerful seeming in that. But I think totally, like, it's hard to imagine her as being particularly more powerful than this. I think she's, I think it's actually hard to beat Kappa Yagulam. Like, she, she gets, she has to get badly beaten up and, and, uh, you know, she has to she pays a herself. price for that power. She pays a price for it. But w- once she establishes her way in with the vampires to control, to, to, to take control from them, she doesn't even have to bat an eyelid to exert that control. Like, I, I, and if that's not huge power, I don't know what is. So I think she does get more powerful. She's getting to the end of her life. She comes to understand what her power is and how to use it. And basically the power that, she decides on is very um martial arts it's find the enemy's power and turn it against them i think she is peak weather wax in this but i think that she still has depths that are are plumbed in later books Mm. okay Hmm. i'm gonna um, summarize this question from zoe which came via our discord because it has a lot of really great observations about metaphors and things as well but at its core the question is which walter is the real walter yeah, and then and you kind of got three to choose from because mm. there's Frank Spencer, Walter, there's Opera Ghost, Walter, and then there's Integrated Jerk, Walter at the end. And I, I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like the the most obvious choice is, is the one at the end because it's both his personalities kind of jammed together, except that I don't – there's not a lot of the original Walter personality in mm. there. No. There's that comment about and, – and Zoe does point this out in her commentary to accompany this question – that – you know, he does mention the cleaning of the privies, but that's kind of also a joke about how you have to do that to keep the opera running, as she says. So I, I don't know that that really is a much of a throwback to what he's like as the Frank Spencer version of the character. Yeah, I, I think that he actually does a complete personality transplant when he turns into um, music director Walter mm. right. at the end. Um, I think the opera ghost was much more kind than final Walter, Walter, Although Walter three. Still fixated on Christine though. Mm. Oh yeah, that's and and understand yeah understand what you're saying. But he was still a much kinder soul. It's hard to describe. Well, no, I kind of get where you're coming from, but I'm wondering how does that translate? Because in the book, the sort of thing he says at the end about star power is not a million miles away from what he says when Agnes, pretending to be Christine, challenges the ghost on, but isn't Agnes mm. a better singer? Mm. Because he says, you know, like, I can train her to sing, I can't train... You know, he's basically making the same argument both times. So is the opera ghost always that jerky, but we have the other Walter counterpoint to sort Mm. of soften him? Or is there something else going on? Hmm. 
I think they're all aspects of him and I think it's a real pity that we at the end end up with the jerk because um, OG... OG Walter as opposed to OG. <laughs> so original um, Walter or opera ghost Walter? Origi- original Walter should be, uh, and if you if he was to write this today, I suspect would be allowed to thrive as he is in a world where we have a lot more understanding of the fact that people who are have different ways of looking at the world and different ways of existing in the world are more than capable of... Um, not just surviving but thriving, doing great things, I think that it could have been written differently in, in, a, in a more modern context. But it's, I, I'm just disappointed that not much of that original person remains. Because mm. mm. that original person was kind and compassionate. He w- enjoyed just listening to music. He wasn't out, he wasn't uh, vainglorious, he wasn't... Um, arrogant. He he was just really good at what he did. Which one wrote the musicals? Opera Ghost. You think so? I, I think so. Yes, I think it would have been the Opera Ghost because he was talking about him like he was a different person, and it was a secret when they when he was down there with Nanny. So mm. I think Opera Ghost wrote those. Okay. Also, original Walter loved opera for what it was. Hmm. He absolutely adored it for what it was, whereas Opera Ghost, Walter... Wants to change it. Wanted to change it. Yeah, okay. That's rather depressing. Gosh, how how did that get so depressing? Um, But Walter's a really weird character in in that way. Well, he's got got fictional... Like, the way his brain works is, is... Clearly, a work of fiction. Mm. Like there's there's a whole bunch of things thrown in there, mm. and it and it works narratively. It's he's a great character, mm. but it's impossible to translate that person into the real world mm. as written. Mm. It just does not match up with dissociative personality disorder or with any kind of like it just doesn't make any sense. Mm. And that's fine because it's not meant to. You know, it's it's like soap opera slash opera opera kind of personality weirdness. And that's fine, but it's not, yeah, it's not anything real. But we, look, I think we might have ended up at a slightly depressing place, but we have been on an amazing journey and we've really enjoyed the book. Mm. Thank you so much for coming along. If people want to get into opera, where would you recommend that they start? Oh, my goodness. Uh, There are many, many um, independent companies out there putting on small performances all around the place. I have friends who have just started up little companies and they just go around and do opera performances all over the place. They're absolute shoestring productions. I recommend getting into that because it's the kind of performance where you could actually go and talk to the performers afterwards very easily and they'd be happy to talk to you. Uh, so there's my friend Stee who does Cordelia's Potted Operas, some other friends of mine who their, their company is called GBD Productions. George B. Dog is what it stands for. Okay. Is it named after an actual dog? <laughs> yes, it is named after an actual dog. Okay, it's great. My friend Jamie. Is that his full name as well, like the dogs? I can't, I'm not sure. I'd have to ask Jamie. But yes, it's uh, Jamie and Mick and Pam. 
They do lots of small productions around the place. There are many others. If you're looking at slightly bigger staged ones, uh, well, Melbourne Opera are doing Norma. Great Australian talent in that one as well. That sort of thing is there. It's And it's not hideously expensive. No. Okay, so these are not prohibitively expensive. So if you're interested in getting into opera, look at those small local companies. Definitely go and see an Opera Australia show. It's worth it. But... You don't have to start there, I guess is my point. You don't have to start Doesn't with have really to be expensive big, things. Big company main stage yeah. production. Yeah. And wherever you are locally, there's probably going to be the equivalent Absolutely. of these small companies. I should give a shout out to my friend Kate, whose company BK Opera is another one of those smaller opera yes. companies in Melbourne. Doing yes, some, I forgot about them. They yeah. do some great work. They do they do a lot of small sort of greatest hits from the opera kind of shows as well as actual you know, opera productions. They so. do twists on it as well, which is mm. really nice. And again, it's another one of those grassroots organisations just – um, a bunch of singers and performers or, or conductors or whoever sitting around saying, how can we perform more? I guess we'll just have to do it ourselves. <laughs> we'll have to put it on ourselves. And they go and do it. Um, and I just wanted to mention that I have actually seen all of Victorian Opera's productions last year and this year because they had a deal for under 30s where you could nice. buy the season tickets and it was the same price as going to a cinema, which I thought was actually really good. So um, that's quite a niche specific thing that Victorian opera do if you happen to be under 30, but it's definitely you get to see the cross section of different things they do. And I didn't realize how varied it was. Um, so that was actually a really yeah. cool way to see it. And also like be forced to watch ones that you probably wouldn't necessarily have gone to if you're just cherry picking. So, mm-hmm. yeah. For sure. And and go and see the ones that are not done so often. I mean, everyone thinks, oh, you need to you need to see the canon. So you need to go and see La Boheme and you need to go and see Madame Butterfly and you need to go and see um, Traviata and all these other things. And yes, they're all wonderful pieces, but, but go and see the things that uh, have only been written last year. Go and see the things that ha- have never been done in Australia before. Um, because or wherever you are. Like or, we yeah, should we yeah. should acknowledge a large proportion yes. of our listener base are not based in Australia oh, or really? Melbourne. I'm, I'm so sorry, overseas listeners. Um, like you've also there got will great be things there. like that everywhere. <laughs> yeah. go, and, go and see the things that are very recent because they're worth seeing. Um, my favourite opera to do, and I, I'm hoping to perform it again later this year, is a piece by Giancarlo Minotti called Amal and the Night Visitors. And it's a a wonderful opera that was written for television in the 1950s. Wow. So it's this really short little piece. It's like half an hour, if that. And beautiful, beautiful music and this wonderful story just compressed into all this short bit of time. But this is really recent work. There's operas being written today continuously and we just don't get to hear it because everyone's like, oh, we want to see Boem again. It's like, oh, gosh. That depresses me, I must admit. I saw a great original opera last year called Lorelei. It was fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much, Miff, for your opera knowledge and your enthusiasm. It's been great to have you on. We do want to thank all of our supporters. If you're thinking of being a supporter, now's a good time to get on board because we have launched our subscriber-only bonus podcast. It's called The Ook Club. And you can get it by being a subscriber. It only costs uh, $2 a month. That's $2 Australian. So if you're not in Australia, it's really cheap. Even if you're <laughs> Australian, it's pretty cheap. Um, uh, and uh, if, you, if you become a subscriber at any level, you get access to that. So that's, that's out. That's released. Um, there will be more episodes of that coming. The first one is out now. And we'd like to thank all our existing supporters for making that happen. You are the reason we can keep making this show and make it the way that we want to. So thank you so much. On a not unrelated note, one of my other shows that is only possible because people have supported it through crowdfunding, 
Night Terrace is back on the BBC as this comes out. I think it will be up to episode two or three of series two. That's playing on BBC Radio 4 Extra on Sunday evenings, UK time. That's at 6pm and it's repeated at midnight. So if you want to hear something else that I've done, that is a great place to find it. That is series two. You don't need to have listened to series one. Um, but you can find the first episode at nightterrace.com along with links to buy the rest of it. I don't think we've got any other pressing news. So all we're left to tell you is what our next couple of books are going to be. Because Liz, we, we thought we might announce the next couple in advance, didn't we? Yeah. So um, the next one we're going to do is Feet of Clay. And then the one after that is going to be Equal Rights. Yeah. We're going to go all the way back to the third ever Discworld book and the origins of Granny Weatherwax. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to Feet of Clay as well. That was a favorite. And we haven't done a watch book for a little while. So after the little teaser of Nobby and Detritus in this book, I'm like, I love this, but I'm also keen to get some more watch action. What note shall we end on? Let's end on a pleasant note. (laughs) Is that like a high C or? Uh, No. What is a pleasant note? Oh, uh, B flat. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Miff Coghill. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones at pratchettpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchett23. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Star Trek podcast Rediscovery and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.